Where is baseball these days in university classrooms, and where is it going? I'll ask Andy Andres, the baseball professor, about that and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 27th. It's show number 41 of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature expert interview with Andy Andres, the baseball professor from Boston University and other institutes of higher learning in the Boston area. We'll discuss the state of the game in university classrooms, why Andy loves playing in the auto-new fantasy baseball format, and his slump, pump, dump, and jumps for the rest of the season. We'll also have our Market Watch player news reports. Harold Nichols has coverage of the National League, including Reese Hoskins, Jack Flaherty, and Tyrone Taylor all out for the year. And Ray Murphy has news from the American League, including Matt Barnes out as Boston's closer, Tristan McKenzie on the IL, Jamai Jones at second base in Detroit, and more American League news. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the frequent flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Yankees shortstop Andrew Velasquez, and in extra innings I'll be talking about a day at the old ballpark. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? I got to see a big league game in person. We gotta talk some baseball. Well, I went with my wife Lisa to see Toronto play Chicago at Rogers Center, Rayu versus Rodon. An interesting game with some great moments, but I didn't enjoy it as much as I'd hoped. I'll talk about that later in my extra innings commentary, but let's get to the first inning of this Friday full edition. It's part one of our feature expert interview with Andy Andres, the baseball professor from Boston University. Andy, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks, Patrick. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I always try to remember if guests have been on the show before, and I know you have. And in fact, if I'm not remembering incorrectly, I think you might have been the very first American League news guy that we had here at Baseball HQ Radio. That is correct. I, I, was, the, uh, I was the key factor in you improving your listener number, because as soon as I left, everybody started listening to you, Patrick. I don't think that's exactly the case. I also remember us making fun of Dave Adler every week when Dave Adler would have something in uh, Baseball HQ that we would just say, well, of course, this guy flopped this week, and that's the curse of Dave Adler with a put a little echo on it and stuff like that, and uh, he was a good sport about it. <laughs> but I think after about the fifth one, he started getting a little irked that we he seemed to be recommending one guy after another who immediately went into the tank. And when he mentioned it, uh, I said to him, Dave, it's a valuable service. It's like the critic who always recommends movies you hate, you know, so uh, you can just <laughs> play play the opposite and you're going to win. Uh, how, so let's talk about uh, your fantasy baseball career and, and uh, your career as an analyst. How long have you been playing fantasy baseball? Uh, since 1995, a long time. Almost uh, 30 years. We're getting on 30 years soon. Do you remember your first league, what the format was, how it got started, that kind of stuff? Yeah, I joined my home league uh, in 95. It was the third year of the league. 
it was formed by a bunch of uh, friends from law school and they asked me in a few years into it. Uh, it had a unique format even then. If you remember Roto 7, it's a lot like Roto 7. We have uh, two week periods where in the middle of the week we set rosters for the two week period. Each two-week period is independent. It's a pretty interesting league. Uh, you can imagine how a league, a set of league rules in a league full of lawyers changes over time. And it's certainly been true in this. But it, it, it really is not a standard roto format at all. Uh, but it's been very interesting to play. Do you still play in that league? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's a group of 19 men, and we're very close. We really... Spent uh, decades getting to know each other pretty well. We have a, an annual get-together to do our draft, and it really is a fabulous group of people. Uh, these are among my best friends in the world now. and It really has been one of those classic great experiences uh, where fantasy baseball has gone beyond uh, a game and really impacted all our lives very, very well. It's called the uh, Boston Baseball League, the BBL. How did COVID, uh, the pandemic and the lockdowns, and you can't travel and you can't meet, how did that affect uh, that year's draft and this year's for that matter? Yeah, uh, both of the last two drafts were under attended, um, but still we got together last July in 2020 during the pandemic, a group of I think it was seven of us got together in Vermont uh, and did an outside draft. Very interesting. We were on Wi-Fi outside and stayed socially distant and uh, had a lot of fun um, putting our teams together last year. Did playing this unusual format help you in playing other formats, more regular, more usual formats, I'll call them? Yeah, it does. I think... I enjoy different formats. One of the reasons I uh, play fantasy baseball is because I like trying new formats out. And um, this league, my home league, really has evolved their set of rules over the years. Um, and I still I, I play different leagues with lots of different rules. Some are pretty standard, but um, I like I like. New, I like new and interesting formats is really uh, one thing I'd say about my time playing fantasy baseball over the years. And we'll talk about auto new in just a second, which is a new and interesting format. Not totally new, but certainly something that a lot of people might not be familiar with. But before we get there, how are you doing in your leagues this year? Uh, I'm in five leagues. One, I'm passive. I'm with a former student. He runs the league. My name's just on the league. I really do not get involved much in that league. I'm in another passive league. It's a best ball cut line where you pretty much are not doing anything roster wise during the year. You pick 40 players and just the NFBC picks the best lineup every week for you. Um, I also uh, play in Nerf, New England Roto Fantasy based on uh, BARF, Bay Area Roto Fantasy. Uh, and that's with bunch of people in the Boston area, fantasy baseball writers here. I play Auto New, which is really interesting with a bunch of uh, fantasy writers also. Um, yeah, so I play five different leagues, five different formats, five different sets of rules. 
You winning any of them? Second in two of them. And the rest, I'm pretty much, you know, I don't have a shot. Got a shot uh, in August and September to catch up? Uh, in, in auto new, Luke is running away with it in our, in our uh, uh, experts league. Uh, but there, there's a race for second that I'm involved with Alex Chamberlain, Eno Saris. Uh, we're, we're trying to shuffle around to take second place in uh, auto new this year. In my home league, yeah, I'm also among three teams vying for first. Definitely have a shot to win that. What was your path from being a fantasy baseball player to getting into fantasy baseball analysis? It really was as simple as being a fan of Baseball HQ and Ron Chandler putting out a notice saying, I need some uh, help uh, with writing fantasy articles. And I applied for the job. And uh, Ron hired me uh, in 2003. And for a long time, uh, certainly at the start of Baseball HQ Radio, I was very involved with HQ, doing some different weekly uh, analysis. And uh, I've enjoyed, I really enjoyed uh, doing that work. Now, I, I'm not as much a fantasy writer, but I'm very much involved in keeping track of what's going on in fantasy and thoroughly enjoy first pitch forum whenever I can go I try to get to the one in you know the new one in Florida love going to first pitch forum Arizona and then before that all the local versions that were up and down the East Coast. well I did see in the baseball HQ biographies that you've had some success playing fantasy baseball in that auto new format and I'd like to talk with you about it because I find it really an interesting approach to fantasy baseball but for those who aren't familiar maybe give us the brief overview of what auto new is yeah, AutoNew was created by Niv Shaw and two friends from business school. And it, it, it really tries to take steps towards what a real general manager might do versus other uh, standard fantasy baseball formats. The key is daily lineups. Um, you know, you have to kind of set your daily lineup. There's settings where you can sort of let your lineup sort of uh, roll out uh, and not play players that aren't in, you know, starting that day. But generally, you kind of have to pay more attention to your auto new roster and your auto new line, uh, daily lineups. The other really cool thing is the off-season arbitration. Um, this isn't a league where you can keep, you know, you get Mike Trout early, you can keep him cheap for years and years. Uh, the arbitration adds salary on players in the off-season, and it really becomes more fair uh, in terms of what players cost. Um, I think it just generally takes steps toward becoming more like uh, what a real general manager would do. I remember years ago hearing about a guy who started a game to try to get that verisimilitude about about the uh, actual general manager's tasks, and the scoring system was based on how many wins your team amassed because that translated to revenue in some way, and it depended on which market you were in and all this kind of stuff. And the guy who won was the guy who met the algorithm's requirements to, to make a lot of money for the team, not to necessarily even win, but just to maximize the amount of money based on how much you 
earned in revenue less how much you spent on salary. So there was a real incentive not to spend on salary, but still field a reasonably competitive team. And it had all these crazy rules in it. I, I don't think it lasted. Uh, but what do you like about Autonew? Well, I think you've got to pay attention. And uh, I like that. I like the idea that I you know need to check in pretty much daily and set my lineup. And the arbitration is always fun because this way those breakout players that one team uh, in your league might have just, you know, by luck gotten like uh, this year, you know, if you had had Tatis in a lot of formats and keeper leagues, you'd have a very uh, inexpensive. That doesn't happen in auto new. Um, so it's a more realistic sort of set of player rosters. Uh, the auction format is great too, because that way, you know, you have a shot at different players and you know you really can be a team that goes for it and uh you can acquire players that are not likely to you know survive a roster move like free agents so this year trying to go for it i acquired aaron judge and manny machado for the for the stretch run uh from a from another fantasy owner who wasn't going to keep them over the offseason just like you'd see in real baseball. So a lot of uh, trades like that happen pretty pretty often. So I had to give up some prospects that you can uh, have. You have It's a 40-man roster. So generally, teams keep anywhere from 5 to 10, 11 minor leaguers on your roster um, just, for, just for the future. And then also for trades – trades that happen often. So I traded some prospects for some players uh, that another owner didn't want. So this is just a step towards more realistic baseball. I read through the rules the other day, and I I noticed that the 40-player roster, you have a $400 annual budget that you have to work with, which is a bigger gross amount than we're used to with 260 as the standard, but it's a smaller per player amount than traditional roto or $10 per player instead of about 14. And I saw on the homepage at Autonew a sample roster that had Mike Trout at $75. That's way ahead of the $10 average. It's much higher than we would expect in almost any fantasy format that we're familiar with using the $260 range. How typical is a $75 Trout in a four hundred dollar auto new environment, very typical. It, it what what you end up doing in your auction uh, it, or in in keeping a player is salaries do rise fairly quickly for the better player, and and you and just this is sort of like real baseball. There's a wide disparity in real baseball between the stars and the scrubs, and the same thing is true in auto. A lot of players. Uh, take up a big portion of your budget, which is true in, in real baseball as well. So, yeah, it's very, very common that Mike Trout is $75. There's no way Mike Trout uh, is going to be cheap in auto new because if, if if I release Mike Trout off my roster in the offseason because I don't want to you know, pay his high salary, he's a free agent, and then he'd be – He's under auction at that point, and you know many many teams uh, have a you know have a lot of room in their budget in the off season, and so Mike Trout gets bid up pretty well, pretty quickly. Um, it's very very common. You see a lot of one dollar players in Auto New. Uh, 
on your 40-man roster, and then you see a lot of high-salary players as well. How does it affect the middle kind of guys and the end game guys? You mentioned there's quite a few $1 guys. Is there a lot of 10 and $12 guys like we see all over uh, roto rosters in the more traditional formats? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so you have up and down the, the price list. Uh, it, it really is about each owner's how they want to structure it. You, to get the stars, you're going to have to uh, have that lucky breakout where you've kept a minor leaguer on your roster and all of a sudden they're going to help you. And, and that, that's, that's a year where you might have a, you know, a low single digit salary for a player, but in the off season, that player is going to get lots of salary put on, on them through arbitration. So you can't keep uh, in a lot of leagues, you can keep a player for years and years at a very low salary. That just doesn't happen. Auto player breaks out off season, their salary goes goes way high uh, because of arbitration, the arbitration rules. And uh, yeah, so there's very expensive players. There's a lot of middle players, you know, in the $10 range, $15 range. And then there's a lot of players in the $5 range and the $1. It really does span across the whole, you know, I, I think the highest in my league now is Trout. Probably might be like $85 all the way down to one, a lot of $1 players. And even your minor leaguers that you pick up, they have to be picked up in the auction process. You, there's no draft of a free draft where where you pick up guys, as is very common in a lot of leagues. There's no drafted reserve round with no salaries, uh, no expenditure required. The, usually there's a salary after the fact where it's arbitrarily set at $5 or a dollar or whatever it is. But as I understand, AutoNew... If you want a minor leaguer, he's going to be part of the auction process and not just picked up in some sort of free way? Exactly. Every player is auctioned, either during the season or in the... We have a big auction to fill out rosters uh, preseason. But um, we have also a, a deadline to cut your roster. So there's a date where you cut your rosters down to the free agents you... Uh, uh, players you want to keep on your roster, then a big free agent pool is out there. They're under all all players, minor leaguers and major leaguers, can be auctioned. Um, there, there's a period where you can't auction, but then the big auction happens to fill out your rosters. And mid-season, you would just cut one player and auction off another player. But everyone has everyone in the league has a chance. It's not a race to pick up someone off the waiver wire. It really uh, is the format where every player can't, uh, is up for auction for all teams. You just have to have the money to pay. So there's budget management going on during the year. Like there are some roto leagues I know that have in-season salary caps, but that's just the standard. It sounds like in auto new. And from my reading of it, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but if you want a player at any point during the season, you have to announce to the league that you're nominating that player, and then there's a little tiny auction that takes place for that player or those players who might be uh, nominated on that particular day to create the environment in which, as you said, nobody can sneak a guy through. If you want um, Leotis Tavares is coming as backup with Texas, and if he's not on a roster, you would have to say to your league, I nominate Leotis Tavares as a free agent, and then there's a a two-day bidding war. That's exactly right. So that we all players have a shot 
uh, all fantasy managers have a shot at all players. You, you, you can't just in the dead of night uh, pick somebody off a waiver wire and claim them. Um, everyone's up for auction. And it's different than, say, Fab, where you're doing a weekly thing. This is, this is done throughout the season. So um, another interesting wrinkle that just happened in my league, and it, I, it wasn't probably the best move, but uh, I, I decided to create salary space, my stretch run, by dumping Christian Yelich. And uh, one, one of the rules is once I cut Christian Yelich and get back some of his salary to, uh, to use, all other fantasy managers can go out and now bid on Christian Yelich. For, thir- for 30 days, I can't pick, re-pick up Christian Yelich. So I'm shut out from you know, re- reacquiring Yelich after I cut him. But I've created a lot of uh, salary space now, so I can really, you know, go ahead and acquire a lot of more expensive players or other players I need. I've got some salary space. And the salary space is also critical when you're trying to make trades, I expect, especially if you're trading dollar players and prospects and acquiring top talent, which is going to probably, because of the structure, is going to come with a fairly large salary. You need to create salary space, much like NBA teams do now, where, you know, every trade has a a salary component and there's all kinds of salary machinations that go on to avail you of the space to make a trade that that you want to make, but might be foreclosed from making if you didn't create the salary space ahead of time. Yeah, that's that's sort of that, that's sort of correct. What one thing that uh, is available in the auto new though is I can actually give money away with a salary with a salary. I do a player dump where I'm getting rid of a high salaried player. I can p- take my budget and pay part of the other pay that player's salary. So, in other words, I picked up. Um, just this year, I picked up Machado and Judge in a trade for prospects, but the other owner gave me money in, as part of the trade so I can pay their salaries. Um, we reset it at the at the off season, so it's back to four hundred. If I want to keep Machado and Judge for the for the next year, I, it's going to take a big chunk of my salary. For next year. But I but I was given a loan this year pay their salary, which is nice. You, you really can dump players. And that's sort of one of the things that can happen in Major League Baseball. Prove you can uh, give money, give money as part of the sal- as part of the player dump, make it happen. And one other nice wrinkle in auto new is that all trades are voted on. If there's ever a trade which is just completely ridiculous, the other league owners can actually say, no, that's not a trade we're going to allow. All trades have to be approved and voted on, which is a nice little wrinkle, too, because, you know, every now and then you're in a league and you're like, oh, that trade stinks. Uh, I really don't like it. I don't think it's fair. And usually it's an appeal to the commissioner or some other format to try to review a trade. This is actually in, in the rules. Everyone votes on every trade. Simple majority or there are 12 team leagues. Do you need eight or nine or how does that work? Simple, simple majority of the people who vote. Some people don't vote. They're like, that's fine. Some, and most people do vote, though. I've never, I haven't seen a trade in my auto new league that's been rejected. Um, but 
the fact that we all vote on it, I think, is sort of a governor on silly trade. So no, no one's going to put out and approve a silly trade um, because it's going to get voted on. You know, you can't just let it. You can't just let a silly trade happen. Got to be approved. Well, you mentioned that this is a keeper league format, and it has sort of dynastic shape because you could theoretically keep a player for his entire career, but he would have to be a pretty poor player because otherwise he gets bid up. Now, as I understand it, it's a $2 per year salary increase for auctioned players, a $1 per year if you uh, got them by some other means that I'm not quite sure of. I know there's a $2 there's a $2 rule and a $1 rule, but $2 a year increase doesn't sound like something that would be that onerous. It wouldn't prevent you from keeping Jose Ramirez or Mike Trout if it was only $2. But you mentioned this arbitration process. What is that and how does that work? Yeah, the arbitration is a little complex. Uh, Basically, I've got money to put on the other team's rosters. Okay, So if I see Jose Ramirez at $9, and I all know, you know, any format, he's going to be worth a lot more than that. I have the ability to add salary on the other team. So if you're in a 12-team league, 11 owners can dump money on your roster to increase increase the salaries of your player. So in addition to every player who played in the majors getting a $2 bump, every player who didn't play in the majors, who's a minor leaguer, gets a $1 bump in their salary. That just happens at the end of the year. Then we go through arbitration where every team theoretically can, you know, get another, I should do the math, um, another $33, $35 bump in their whole salary structure because the other owners are putting, putting but you know, increasing your budget. So uh, 11 owners can see a player worth a dollar who's like a $30, $40 player. All of a sudden that player is very quickly – uh, costing you about $30. So uh, it really does even out the whole salary structure. It, it's really a nice invention that Niv Shaw did for the league. It certainly does even things out. I remember one of the big bugaboos in my home league, which was a keeper league, was that they had they kept inventing ways for for owners to acquire players without paying for them. You know, it started off with we draft, we had a three-man minor league roster that we drafted and they all had $5 salaries if they when they got activated. And before long, there was 14 guys on that minor league roster and more and more players weren't going through the auction process, which means more and more players were severely undervalued. And there was, there was no recourse. There was nothing you could do about it because that was the rules. And of course, the those rules were introduced because some of the guys in the league weren't good at auctions and therefore they wanted to figure out some way of turning it to to making the auction less important which i didn't like very much frankly but getting back to the this the mechanism of this arbitration you said if you recognize that jose ramirez is on some other guy's team at nine dollars and you want to increase that you can assign money from your budget or is there a separate pool of, of money that you can allocate to all the underpriced guys that you want to tr- try to get back up towards value? Are you paying for it out of your $400, or is it a separate pool? It's a separate pool. Um, yeah, but we have a mon- arbitration money that we can put onto other people's uh, 
you know, players uh, salary. So it's not out of your four hundred dollar budget. It's uh, it's a set, separate set of money that we can add to other other the dollar values of other players. I presume that uh, the arbitration pool is not infinite. You have it's there's some amount, a fixed amount of money that you can allocate. Otherwise, you just allocate millions to everybody. How much do you have to spread around? Uh, every off season, you have twenty five dollars to spread around uh, the eleven teams. Do you collude or have a meeting in the league, and everybody agrees how much they want to send to inflate? Uh, Jose Ramirez's salary, or is everybody kind of figuring this out on their own? And, and if you look at Jose Ramirez, you might think he should be a $34 player. He's at nine. I don't want to give all my $25 arbitration money just to him. So you got to kind of calibrate or or assess. Everybody in the league's going to throw a couple of bucks on Jose Ramirez just to make sure he gets up there, but we want to all keep our powder a little bit dry for all the other guys who are in the same sort of Jose Ramirez situation where they're severely undervalued and we need to bump that up. Yeah, so the, the actual rules is I've got $25 to add to other teams. I have to give a dollar to every other team, so I can't put $25 on one player. All 11 teams have to have like at least $1 assigned. What that means, though, is uh, the max you can put on any team is $3. So it is spread out quite evenly. You, you can't just collude and jump on one player, but you could theoretically increase the salary by $33. If 11 other players decide this player is really inexpensive, you can, you know, all other teams are going to pump up that salary by, a, could be a significant amount, anywhere from, you know, the, the range is $0 bump on your uh, roster, your salary for your players, up to 33 theoretically. Now, there's I've never seen collusion in my league. Uh, I presume there could be. I mean, there, there's a whole discussion board where people talk. Uh, we I've never seen it, though, in my league. Um, but, you know, we've... There's a lot of, uh, you know, big name fantasy writers in our league, and I just don't think they want to be out there, you know, saying, oh, let's just dump all our money on Andy's Mike Trout. It, it, it really is an independent, in my league anyway, an independent thing. I'll sit around and decide who to put, uh, who to put the arbitration dollars. I wasn't thinking of collusion may have been a poor choice of words. I just wondered if there was open cooperation where everybody kind of figured out together where the where the underpriced players were and, and agreed on some mechanism to, to even that out a bit. But I think that if the players in the league are competent, then you can kind of count on, I'll throw my $2 on Jose Ramirez because I know everybody else in the league is going to do likewise and it'll quickly get Jose Ramirez's $9 salary up to a place where it really more likely ought to be. And it should work that way. And that's actually good because the less rules that the league imposes on salaries and stuff and the more the players impose on salaries and stuff i think it just makes the league more representative of the skills of the of people in it yeah i agree i really do enjoy the auto new arbitration uh format it's it's very interesting and i i suspect that a lot of leagues could use improvements like this uh, i know my home league good and we all can sort of complain about the rules in our home leagues and how they go. Uh, but you know what? It's still fun. Um, I still enjoy lots of, you know, different formats and certainly enjoy auto new. 
I remember years ago in my home league that I mentioned earlier, the problem that we had was that there was a lot of chicanery going on with the contracts and stuff. And I proposed a rule change that said, instead of at our auction, just bidding and the guy automatically gets a two-year contract with a third-year option, the bidding process should include the number of years you're willing to pay this guy. And you have to keep him if you, if you, uh, acquire them through the auction. So if, if you and I are bidding on Jose Ramirez, you might say $10 a year for two years. And I would either have to raise the amount, but I'd have to keep the two years. And you could increase the bid by increasing the dollar amount or by adding years. But and uh, adding a year would impose that on everybody who keeps bidding. And we talked about it for a long time, and the problem that people came up with was, of course, what if people quit the league? You know, I'll, I'll pay, you know, $50 for Mike Trout for 20 years, and then they win the league and they leave. And I said, well, you could force them. If you have any four-year players, you got to pay your f- next four years fees in advance, and that would solve that, but it got to be fairly naughty. But I, I just like the idea that, that uh, the auto-new format has been designed with these kind of things in mind, and in a... F- intelligent way intelligent design who'd have figured and it worked out uh <laughs> it worked out uh you know there's evolution and then there's intelligent design in this i guess and it worked <laughs> uh, uh, yeah i don't want to i don't want to touch that one yeah, but, no <laughs> uh, but yeah it, it's a great format and i think niv and chad young and others who helped put this together have done a great job and you know niv is also Tried to do similar uh, things with uh, fantasy football and fantasy basketball. So he's really trying to just generally make rules of uh, fantasy sports a little more like a nor- how a normal GM would act with, with, with different different sports. And um, certainly, uh, Auto New is growing, I think, in popularity over the years. The number of leagues keeps increasing. And uh, you know, I've just it's our our league, the Auto New, uh, fan, it's called the Fangraphs Experts League. We've been doing this for this is our eleventh year, so we've done it a while now. Is there a decent amount of turnover in so far as who's rebuilding, who's competing, who's winning, or do that is the cream consistently rising to the top as far as getting championships or getting money finishes? Yeah, every team has to decide if it's a rebuild, and what you basically do is you. You have a lot of money at the at the preseason auction to, to bid on players. A lot of people keep money for the for the middle of the year. Some people spend all their budget preseason. They're kind of maxed out. Um, I've lately I've been going for it because my team is, is a little stronger sometimes, and so I, I'm very much on the edges of salary issues. But a lot of teams have been dumping, and they have a lot of salary, and they and they accumulate breakout players, uh, you know, during the season, put on their rosters for the next season. So you really have the ability to, you know, hit hit the top of your salary and and play the edges of spending a lot of money, uh, and then you also have the ability to rebuild, rebuild well, and pick up. You have money to spend and pick up a lot of players that you want to keep. You, that, some players go up to 15 minor leagues uh, just because they want to just have a lot of, you know, cheap talent around to trade and or, you know, hope, hope for next year. A lot of different ways to go about it. 
The Auto News site says there are three scoring options. Classic 5x5 is one I understand, but there's also a linear weights points league and what they call modernized 4x4. What are the other two? Uh, well, the the points league is instead of your 5x5 categories, you accumulate points for different events. You know, they, they, they try to weight, it's like linear weights. If you know what that is, they basically... Accumulate singles, doubles, triples, home runs, you know, save, wins, strikeouts, walks, and it's all different values, like a like in a you know linear weights format. And it, it that is a really interesting format because it's very much like uh, true baseball. Um, the five by five obviously has got the, the saves problem and the stolen bases problem and the wins problem. And by problem, I mean, you know, it just changes the value of players versus their real value. If you do this points format, you're really getting towards a, 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 a game with real baseball value involved. So you're in a points league? No, I played auto new points leagues, and they're really fun. I also, the, the, the one I've been playing for 11 years is a 5x5. Five five. With batting average or do these OVP? Batting average, yeah. Yeah, so it is uh, truly classic. Classic format, yeah. From a quick spin through the uh, Auto New community forums, I get the sense that they've combined a certain amount of rigidity in the rule set, but also quite a bit of flexibility. For instance, I saw a discussion about the amount of customization available, but I also saw a note from Niv Shaw, the founder of Auto News, saying that leagues that try to manipulate their salary rules or their minor league roster rules, I guess there's something called coupons and basically promissory notes that their people are moving around outside the official framework of the league. And if he f- discovers it, he's going to s- just disqualify the league. How much leeway does an individual league have in setting its own rules? I think we could change the categories very easy, like in a lot of formats. We can choose a different 5x5 five five game or a 4x4 four four game. We can readjust points in our in that points format. If we want to increase the value of a walk, we can do that, you know, quite you can do that quite easily. Those are the rules I think you can you can modify well. But you'd really I I agree with Niv in a way. You really don't want to change the fundamentals of arbitration. You don't want to change uh, the fundamentals of, you know, uh, I'll do this trade, but I'll, you'll trade them back to me. You know, these other kind of side deals. Uh, yeah. So I think Niv is trying to be flexible with uh, some of the formats, but not too flexible. <laughs> You'd have to ask though uh, you know some of that stuff but I, I think that's right you want to for certain things you don't want to have too much too much uh, too much leeway it seems to me that the focus is on what you said at the outset when we started talking about this is that he's trying to design a game that represents the general manager experience and uh, you know baseball changes its rules every so often but the general manager's role remains pretty pretty stable in that it is about player valuation, player deployment, and roster management. And those are the three things that it seems Niv is very, very concerned about making sure that the rules uh, remain pretty stable in that regard. You said you can change some of the rules in your league. Is that just another, let's have a meeting and discuss it and have a quick vote? Or how, how do you guys go about that? Uh, we, we've never changed rules in my league. 
ever. So <laughs> uh, we, we had never had to go through that. Um, I think our league, the one, the one I'm in, um, we just, we just, you know, want to keep the standard five by five format and play that straight, you know, as a sort of a, a nod to the history of fantasy baseball. It's, uh, I'm sure we could sit around and maybe suggest rule changes, but I think there's also a, you know, an enjoyment of just classic five by five. And for people who write about fantasy baseball for a living, they probably want to stay on classic five by five because that's what most of the readers are playing. And you don't want to be out there talking about some guy's, you know, WOBA as a measuring stick for fantasy performance when 99% of the Yahoo leaguers and ESPN leaguers and um, those kinds of leagues are going, what? I don't care about this. I want to talk about RBIs. <laughs> so, you know, it helps you stay a little bit more connected to your actual consumers at the end of the day. Uh, Andy, this has been really interesting so far. I need to take a quick break here. We have our National League and American League news with Nick and Ray. We'll come back a little later and we'll talk about uh, baseball stats and universities and that kind of stuff. Great. All right. Thanks, Patrick. Andy Andres teaches at Boston University, and he'll be back later in the show. Coming up, we have our Market Watch Player News reports. Nick has the National League news. Ray has the American League next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our Buyer's Guides, columnist Stephen Nickrand looks at starting pitchers' base performance value in left-right splits. And Bullpen's columnist Doug Dennis reviews the situations of five teams, including Boston, Oakland, and Texas. In the Arsenal Report, analyst Tanner Smith did a great job as a guest here on Baseball HQ Radio, looks at approaching the final lap, and he digs into Nestor Cortez of the Yankees and Max Fried in Atlanta. And in the Eyes Have It podcast, scouting analyst Rob Gordon joins Brent and Chris to talk about live looks he had at Detroit prospects Spencer Torkelson and Riley Green and Pittsburgh prospect Tucupita Marcano. Chris and Brent also discuss Edward Cabrera's debut in Miami and ponder some potential September call-ups. And those are just three articles among dozens. Actually, two articles and a podcast, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. There's player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates and playing time today, roster forecasting and playing time tomorrow. There's buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers, fantasy market analysis in Brad Coleman's Market Pulse, injury analysis in Matt Cederholm's column The Big Hurt, and groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, there are tools like the player projections updated every day. We have depth charts, daily dashboards, pitcher matchup planners, bullpen indicators, batter consistency reports, complete pitcher PQS logs, potential surgers and faders across the categories, and other leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. So when you add it all up, you get expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch Player News Reports. Ray Murphy on deck with the American League Report. And leading off, it's our National League News and our old friend, Baseball HQ pitcher matchups analyst Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to the show. 
Thank you, Patrick. You know, on uh, Friday, I think it was, uh, Reese Hoskins was activated. No, it was Sunday he was activated. And now, a couple of days later, he's out for the year. All of a sudden, he's had the groin strain problem. Well, now they say he needs surgery. Phil Hertz covered this for playing time today. How does this affect the playing time in Philadelphia and who gets it? Well, yeah, and interestingly, uh, earlier in the week, uh, Brent Hershey had mentioned that uh, this this injury uh, could be something that might linger, even though it was good to have Hoskins back in the lineup. But at this point, uh, says he says he'll miss the rest of the season because of surgery. Brad Miller got most of the playing time while he was sent to the IL, and that's likely to be the case in the immediate future. Um, and probably uh, Alec Bohm, uh, recently demoted, might also be recalled. So those two players, I think, are the ones to take a look at in this in this instance. I took a quick look at the depth charts at BaseballHQ.com, and Brad Miller indeed gets 55% of the playing time at first, and Alec Bohm all of a sudden back with 25% of it, so that's not nothing. And he, Also, we have him down for 15% at third base, so there's uh, some stuff going on, and Philadelphia, of course, is tr- trying desperately to catch up to Atlanta in that National League East race. But meanwhile, more bad news for them, Zach Eflin was scratched from his start on Thursday. Phil Hurts again on that story. Uh, what's going on with Zach Eflin and who figures to benefit? Zach Eflin uh, reports he was healthy enough to appear, have, may have been overly optimistic, not clear whether this is just a minor setback or whether he'll be out for an extensive amount of time. It means that Matt Moore will get more time in the rotation uh, for whatever that's worth. And not much, it would be my guess. Uh, He's not the kind of guy anymore, if he ever was, that uh, is going to really make a difference for most fantasy teams. The interesting thing here is I noticed that Ranger Suarez, we bumped his playing time up to 8%. Of course, he started out a couple of weeks ago. We were talking about him as the new closer there, and now all of a sudden he's in the rotation and doing pretty well. Doing very well, and now it looks like fully extended so that he can uh, pitch uh, pitch 90, get up to 90 pitches or so. Uh, He's looking very, very good, actually. I've got him on, on the team and uh, very happy to have him there. And it looks like the skills are pretty decent. Uh, of course, the question when somebody transitions from being a reliever to being a starter is, can the kind of skills that make them effective as a reliever be sustained over the, the much longer haul that goes with throwing, you know, six innings, five, six innings instead of one inning? Right. And it looks like that's going to work at this point for, for uh, Ranger Suarez. So, uh, uh, if he's still sitting around in your league, he's probably not, but uh, definitely somebody to keep an eye on, I think, at this point. Well, poor me. I, I had him on my roster, and I had to dump him when he became the non-closer, and I wasn't sure what he was going to do, a spot starter, an opener. We weren't sure. And here he is, a fairly effective starting pitcher. I'm going to check this weekend to see if I can get him back, but uh, I suspect that maybe he might have been snapped up, but we'll have to wait and see. In San Diego, they got some good news, and heaven knows they could use it. Uh, you Darvish was activated. Jock Thompson covers the Padres for playing time today. What are the playing time effects here with you Darvish back? And Darvish came back as Thursday night starter uh, versus the Dodgers. Uh, the Padres rotation, of course, has been uh, short of legitimate starting pitchers for weeks. So uh, we'll, we'll subtract from the San Diego bullpen shuttle around the edges to accommodate for a playing time bump with Darvish back. Um, obviously, fantasy players get Darvish back into their active rosters immediately. Uh, 3.70 ERA, 11 wins to 131 innings pitched, and was, was okay. Uh, for this first start, it was the Dodgers, and they they jumped off to a big lead. And uh, but uh, Darvish will do do really well once he gets uh, back and gets settled out, and doesn't have to pitch against the Dodgers first time out. 
What I noticed about that series that they had with the Dodgers, of course, I noticed that Darvish was pitching, but boy, did Blake Snell have a terrific start. He, he's gone uh, PQS 1-5-2-3-4 over his last five starts, and the last one was a PQS 4 against the Dodgers. They're mighty tough. He went seven and two-thirds innings, which I heard on the radio broadcast is the longest start he's ever had in the big leagues, which strikes me as weird for a pass high young winner. One earned run, 10 strikeouts in seven and two-thirds, and no walks. Could it be that Blake Snell is back? Well, it could be indeed. I mean, Blake Snell, that's certainly one of the best starts uh, they've seen from him all year. Uh, and maybe he could be back. He's been struggling a bit. And, uh, you know, you kind of wonder, uh, is he worth hanging on to? But that start certainly says he was uh, and very, very definitely could help the Padres from here through the end of the season uh, if he's back with that kind of form. Well, coming into a brief stint on the IL at the end of June, he was really struggling. His five-start running uh, rolling average, I guess we call it, for PQS starts was 1.4, which is, which is barely above a consistent level of disastrous starts. And in fact, to this day, his disasters have outnumbered his dominant starts by double. But it looks like he might be turning the corner with these uh, last few starts a PQS 2 at Arizona wasn't too reassuring, but then here he comes against a reasonably decent Philadelphia team, and then especially, as I mentioned, against the Dodgers. I think that there's some possibilities here for Snell, but then at the back end of the rotation, Nick, we've got guys like Chris Paddock, who's been struggling, Ryan Weathers, Denelson Lamette, who doesn't seem to be able to stay on the field. Uh, what do you think the opportunities are for fantasy managers when they look at the back end of the San Diego rotation? Uh, the, the back end of the rotation is certainly tough, and I, that's, they're probably still going to kind of be piecing things together until they can get it all figured out. But with Snell, if Snell is uh, going to step up and Darvish back, uh, things that uh, could look pretty good for at least the first part of the San Diego rotation, as long as they can patch together that kind of fifth start or, or use off days so that they don't have to worry about it too much. Boy, I like Denelson Lamette's skills, but uh, I've had him on a couple of rosters uh, over the last few years, and he just can't stay on the field. So it's, uh, it's really hit and miss. I mean, if you get him on a good week when everything's feeling okay, you might get a decent start out of him, but I don't think you can rely on him at all. If you're looking to make some noise down the stretch here, he's not the kind of guy I don't think you can rely on. Neither, unfortunately, is Jack Flaherty in, in St. Louis. They put him on the 10-day IL. He's got some right shoulder strain problems. They recalled a right-hander, Junior Fernandez, from AAA. This is not good news for Jack Flaherty, and with the Cardinals out of the running, it seems at least somewhat likely, if not very likely, that he's done for the year. Yeah, there's certainly a good chance that he's finished for 2021, and they won't, uh, certainly won't rush him back. Uh, so we've greatly reduced his projected innings. We'll wait to zero him out until it's certain that he won't pitch again. Uh, Fernandez got uh, Flaherty's roster spot. The bigger question, though, is how St. Louis will replace him in the rotation. One candidate is Kwang Hyun Kim, who just returned from an elbow injury and was consigned to the bullpen. We covered him uh, earlier this earlier this month, and then other candidates would include Jake Woodford and uh, Johan Aviedo. Woodford made three starts last month, while the first was a PQS three. The next two were a PQS zero and PQS one. Uh, Oviedo has made 13 starts for the Cardinals in 2021, been plagued by inconsistency and inability to go deep into games. Over 13 starts, he's only pitched five or more innings four times. Doesn't look like a lot of help there. I did notice that we've upped Kim's playing time to 8.5% of the starts, which is getting not quite to full-time starter status. Usually that's around 10 or 11% of the remaining starts. But would you put a bet in on uh, on Kim? I, You know, it's one of those, it, 
it's one of those really difficult kind of situations with Tim because sometimes he can be absolutely wonderful uh, and other times absolutely awful. So it's just a, a very inconsistent kind of thing. Uh, at this point, Tim has not been pitching uh, long, long stints. You're going to probably emotionally going to get out of him to six innings, if that, at this point. So uh, I guess it would depend on the state of my rotation. He's not somebody to jump on. But uh, I might want to keep an eye on him because he's had some good, some very good starts for them uh, back in, in the early part of July before, before his IL problem. Am I remembering correctly that at one time they were looking at him as a closer? I seem to remember having him on a roster once on that premise, but I may be confusing things. I, I think they may have been. And, you know, it's one of those things where, where he so, sometimes outpitches his, uh, his projections and his peripherals. If you look at his uh, at his line at this point, he's got a 16% DOM rate, a 26% disaster rate. So he pitches kind of right in the middle. But it's certainly certainly a fair number of games in which he allowed only one or zero earned runs. Uh, and those kind of games can help you, even if he's not getting a, a high number of strikeouts. And you mentioned Oviedo. I looked at his PQS record, and he's got a f- PQS 4 pitching against Miami a little while ago, and he had a PQS4 late July against the Cubs. That was uh, post-deadline, so it wasn't the same Cubs team that it was at the start of the year, certainly. But other than that, listen to this record, Nick. Um, At Detroit, zero. At Colorado, zero. At San Francisco, two. And at Cincinnati, one. I understand that the opposition makes a difference, but I don't see an awful lot of really tremendous accomplishment in this whole PQS score thing. Uh, zero against the Mets, one against San Diego, one against Arizona, one in a home start against Cincinnati. That's all earlier this year. I don't know how desperate I'd have to be, Nick, before I'd uh, maybe take a chance on Oviedo. Yeah, I think, you know, I, as we said, he's not going to work, work deeply into games, uh, and that's going to be a problem because that limits the number of strikeouts you're going to get from him, and it limits the chance for a win. So I'm not sure. I'd have to be pretty desperate, I think, to to uh, jump on Oviedo. Highest pitch count in that whole time, actually all year, has been 98. So they're not afraid to let him pitch, uh, pitch count-wise, but in that 98-pitch start, he only got four and a third innings. So uh, one of those kind of guys who, who just can't efficiently get guys out uh, I like to use a metric while I'm watching games, Nick, is I always want to know how many pitches per out. How many pitches is it taking on average for a pitcher to get his outs? And uh, typically, if you're around you know, five or fewer per out, you're going to have a decent outing and probably have a pretty good chance to have uh, a good result. But uh, four and a third, what's that, 13 outs for 98 pitches? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's seven uh, and a half. That's, that's not going to work. Yeah, I know, and it tells you that the, that the hitters are waiting on him. They, you know, they know he's not uh, he's not going to be throwing strikes and strike them out on three pitches, and they're waiting to see what's coming and how he's doing. So uh, that kind of inefficiency certainly is, is very unimpressive. In San Francisco, some bad news for them. In the middle of a very heated pennant race, pitcher Anthony DiSclefani is going to the IL with ankle inflammation. This doesn't appear to be a huge thing right now. It's the IL stint is retroactive to last Thursday, so he could be ready to go as soon as Monday at Atlanta. But if he's not, who do you think is likely to get the start against what is a really tough and competitive Atlanta team? It looks like if that if that's uh, right now where they're looking at TBD and not sure whether he'll be ready to come off or not. Uh, probably that start on Monday would go to Sam Long, uh, and Sam Long is uh, is someone who. 
another one of those guys that's got uh, got some good pedigree and, and someone we think will do well, but he's been very, very inconsistent. Um, but the last start, 8-24 against the Mets, five in the third inning, no earned runs, uh, four strikeouts, one walk. So Sam Long certainly has the potential for the remainder of this season uh, and certainly for the future. When I knew we'd be talking about Sam Long, I looked at his 20, uh, 2021 San Francisco Giants organization report at Baseball HQ by our scouting team, and he wasn't listed among their top 15 guys, although I've been hearing a lot of buzz about Sam Long since the start of the season, so I don't really know what to say about that. But uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens to Di Sclafani because he's been such a great story as a comeback from some pretty... Um, uneven results in Cincinnati and all of a sudden he ends up in San Francisco like his teammate uh, Kevin Gaussman who all of a sudden looks like a Cy Young candidate and San Francisco's doing something right over there Nick I guess I'll just say that and I'm curious to see if DeSclafani can get it to the finish line and, and finish up what has been a pretty good year. Uh, carrying on in Milwaukee Tyrone Taylor the outfielder looked like a pretty good speed power kind of guy he's on the IL and probably done for the year. Yeah Taylor likely finished for the season uh, infielder Jace uh, Peterson is likely to see some outfield playing time uh, with starting outfielders Abasil Garcia and Lorenzo Cain seeing increased playing time. Uh, Taylor has been swinging a hot stick in recent weeks, uh, earning him increased playing time, uh, showed excellent speed, moderate power, uh, some ample hard contact, and has become a very solid fourth outfielder for Milwaukee. So someone to keep an eye on as we head into next season's drafts. But uh, unfortunately, it looks like he's, he's probably done for this season. I noticed that uh, the Baseball HQ team analysts gave Avisail Garcia and Lorenzo Cain both 10% playing time boosts. And that's an interesting story to me because it seems to address something that I've been hearing in the fantasy baseball community, a little bit of mumbling and murmuring about Christian Yelich possibly seeing a little more bench time because he just hasn't been getting the job done. And one of the reasons for that was that Tyrone Taylor had popped up as a pretty legitimate possible replacement for Christian Yelich. Is this a reprieve for a guy who used to be a solid first-round pick? Well, it, 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 it might be, uh, especially if Yelich begins to produce something even on a one- or two-game basis. But uh, as we as we noted at this point, uh, we're not changing playing time for, for Yelich at this point right now. So uh, maybe a, a brief reprieve for Yelich. Uh, we'll have to see uh, what how, how he plays, I guess, from, from day to day almost at this point. His playing time was at 90% before, it's at 90% now, so it looks like they're, I hate to say you're stuck with a guy like Christian Yelich, but if Milwaukee had any ideas that they were going to do something about Christian Yelich, uh, maybe give him a rest or something like that, with them in the playoff race as well, it seems pretty unlikely that they're going to do anything at this point, because now they don't have Tyrone Taylor, and you're moving down to the likes of Jace Peterson and Eric Yardley, <laughs> you know, this is not a replacement for Christian Yelich at this point, I'll just say it that way, uh, in Washington, there's a guy, Yadiel Hernandez, an outfielder, and he's getting a chance to play, and he's certainly doing a lot with it. Uh, Brent Hershey covered this story for Playing Time Tomorrow earlier this week. Uh, tell us what's going on with this Yadiel Hernandez. It's a good story. It is a good story. 33 years old. Uh, uh, at this point, uh, starter of 16 of 19 August games, uh, getting good production, 299 batting average, 809 OPS, and 154 at-bats for the season entering uh, this past Tuesday. Uh, Cuban-born left-handed hitter signed as a 29-year-old in October 2016, entered pro ball at AA in 2017, and has pretty much hit at every level, uh, with stateside uh, career marks of 300, 
383, 506, 68 home runs, and just over 1,500 at-bats. Uh, 5'10", 188 pounds, not a pure power hitter, but 121 hard contact index, 75% contact rate. Means he's making very solid contact. And a 7.7% barrel rate, 39.3 hard hit rate by a stat cast. Uh, so he's always had a balanced left-handed stroke. Uh, uh, probably best served off the bench as a quality pinch hitter, but will likely continue to get some chances to work himself into the plans for next season uh, the rest of the way. And part of the reason right now, as Brent Hershey reports, is the Nats don't really have a lot of options. I guess he said that there's a Andrew Stevenson could play center field in a pinch, but I noticed that we're giving Adil Hernandez 40% of the playing time in the outfield in Washington, which is the same as Lane Thomas, who's been around. He can take a bit of a walk, uh, get some looks. His contact and his power haven't really been that present. Uh, Lane Thomas and uh, Yadiel Hernandez are within a few points of each other in on-base percentage and both pretty comfortably in the 360s, so that's promising. But get this, Hernandez is out-slugging Lane Thomas by 193 points. It doesn't seem like at some point the Nationals are looking to choose between the two or alternate or something like that. You, you can't ignore 200 points of slugging. No, you can't, very definitely. And so if Hernandez continues this through September, it looks like he may have himself a job uh, as we head into next season. But uh, And that's certainly what the Nationals are looking at at this point, is, is what are they going to do with Yadiel Hernandez, 33 years old, and uh, uh, is he likely to be a starter for them in, in 2022? Still young enough to make a make an impact, I think, in Washington. Uh, you mentioned he was 29 when he signed, so that puts him at about what, 33 or so, 34, something like that now. Still young by today's standards. I can remember you and I are both probably uh, just advanced enough in our experience and wisdom <laughs> to uh, to uh, to remember when 34 was done, and that's certainly not the case these days. Right, very definitely not. I mean, we, we, we have a, a litany of players who are 34-plus are who are playing very well, and I'd be glad to have them on my roster. Of course, at the time when 34 was done, I was 34, and I didn't feel like I was done, so <laughs> maybe there's something there to that. There you go. And finally, Nick, uh, one of our favorite columnists at BaseballHQ.com is Ryan Bloomfield, who writes the Speculator column. He had a really interesting one this week in which he talked about playing time experiments that teams are undertaking in September that he thinks could be worth monitoring on a future basis, and one of the guys he mentioned was Cincinnati shortstop Jose Barrero. Jose Barrero, injuries have hit Cincinnati pretty hard this year, and so they're still in the thick of the National League wildcard race and need to play whoever produces. And so here we have uh, Jose Barrero uh, called up in the wake of injuries to Jesse Winker and Nick Senzel and should see time at second base, shortstop, third base, maybe even the outfield down the stretch. He had 300, over 300 in double-A and triple-A this year, has an all-around skill set that could lead to five-category production in a really great lineup and a great ballpark. Uh, so somebody keep your eyes on at this point in Cincinnati. If he's producing, he's going to play, uh, and, uh, maybe a sneaky, a sneaky ad if he's out there on your waiver wire. Pretty well regarded prospect. And he's another guy that I've been hearing a ton about in the fantasy baseball media, fantasy baseball podcasts and articles and what have you. A lot of people interested in Jose Barrero. So if you think you might be interested, you might have to act fast because he's been on the big league roster long enough that he's probably passed through free agent pools in a lot of leagues and 
probably got snapped up in most of them. So you need to take a quick look at Jose Barrero to see if there's something there. Uh, another name that Ryan mentioned, and this one I have to admit, Nick caught me a little bit by surprise, and that name is uh, Lewis Brinson in Miami. And when I read that name, I thought, what, this again? Yeah, you know, we thought Lewis Brinson was, was pretty far down the A-Rod 10-step uh, path to start him uh, three years ago. So, you know, suddenly he's popping up again. Um, but a recent hot streak where he's striking out less, 79% contact rate over the last uh, 31 days, where a career 69% contact rate. So that's definitely a short-term improvement. Making better contact, a 148 power index versus a career 83 power index. So it could be a small sample size variance that corrects itself in September. Uh, but, you know, it's worth looking at. But uh, came out of last night's game with a thumb injury. Don't know exactly what's going on with that at this point. So I wouldn't grab him today. I'd wait to see what's going on with that uh, that thumb problem uh, because those things can certainly be uh, uh, be difficult for someone and may uh, might, as we head into September, really reduce his playing time. Even if he hadn't uh, had the thumb injury, Nick, I think this would have been one of those situations where a lot of whether you want to take a chance on a guy like Lewis Brinson depends on your team context. If you need to catch a little lightning in a bottle, you're fifth and you're you know trying to make it up to second and pick up 10 fast points. Why not, as Ryan Bloomfield says in his Speculator article. But boy, if you're in any kind of tight competition and what you need is steady, reliable production, I just don't think Lewis Brinson has established yet, even after all these years, anything other than very talented, also very streaky, and very inconsistent. Yeah, what we're seeing right now is clearly a, a real hot streak. Over the last month, four home runs, 17 RBIs, but a 234 batting average to go along with that, and a 287 on base percentage. We're projecting him for $5 value the rest of the year. I tend to look at our projections on that uh, fairly heavily at this time of year before I jump on someone. All right, Nick, a very interesting week. We'll have a few more, I'm sure, including next week, and we'll talk to you then. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a Baseball HQ pitching analyst and our reporter on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn to the American League and co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com, Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back to the show. Hello, PD. Happy end of the week here. And uh, let's start in your neck of the woods. The big news, I think, of the week, perhaps, is that Alex Cora, the manager of the Red Sox, has made it official. Matt Barnes is out as the closer, and the question is who's in, and they're being a little bit more coy about that. Yeah, I think the uh, putting the blame for this is on Alex Cora might be a little bit misassigned because I think uh, Barnes did more than enough to get himself removed from this role, at least temporarily. He's been uh, absolutely atrocious for the, the, the month of August. Uh, looking at the monthly splits on the site here, he's got a just a 1688 ERA in August. That's probably not closer worthy. I think probably the most charitable thing we can say about it. Um, like you say, the, the question is where they're going to go from here. Um, it was Hansel Robles who cleaned up one of Barnes's messes the other night. Uh, you know, he's uh, he was a, mid, a trade deadline acquisition from the Twins, obviously. But I think it's likely Adam Adovito who uh, will be getting the next save op when the opportunity arises uh, for the Red Sox. Uh, I has been also quite good this year, uh, not Barnesian. Uh, Barnesian. Barnes was terrific in the first half, uh, but uh, Adovino has been taking out a little bit of water himself lately, uh, six walks and four strikeouts in August, but he hasn't been tattooed the way that um, 
the way that Barnes has. So I, I, I would expect that Adovino gets the next look for lack of better options because Robles is the other one. Robles has been working pretty hard the last couple of days, and Robles has been dicey too. So it's, it's, a, it's a big step down for Barnes to wherever they land. The story that I got was from Jen McCaffrey at The Athletic. I really love The Athletic for obvious reasons. And she said that uh, Cora did not mention Adam Ottavino in the press conference that resulted from this uh, hullabaloo. He mentioned a couple of other names, and one of them was Garrett Whitlock. And uh, that seems to be where Jen McCaffrey thinks they should go. And, you know, maybe that is the right answer for the short term. I obviously have not read that article. But, uh, you know, the, 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 the thing about Ottavino, Whitlock that makes me think that's less likely is that he's been super valuable in a multi-inning relief role. But in terms of results and skills, I mean, he's been fantastic. Uh, 60 innings, 15 walks to 67 strikeouts. So that's a you know, north of four command ratio, a 27% strikeout rate. I mean, this is a closer worthy skill. And he's been better lately. He hasn't been taking on water the way that Barnes and and for that matter, Adovino have. So uh, if, the, if he wants to go with the hot hand, then Whitlock probably is uh, the only one who qualifies as even remotely warm at this point. And apparently Cora also mentioned Garrett Richards. You know, Richards, the you know, recent transition to the bullpen, you know, he got bumped out of the rotation when uh, when Sale and Halk got promoted, and he's been pretty decent in that role. Uh, he's got four relief appearances and but they've been of length you know three and four innings and only one outing was a one inning relief one inning role and in that role he gave up a run so i don't know that seems like a stretch to me but uh you know we, it's always weird when pitchers starters move to the bullpen and you know their stuff plays up they suddenly find three ticks of velocity i, I haven't really seen that evidence from richards but or is watching more closely and uh, you know, Richards is topping out at 95 in the bullpen, which is about where he was. He was more of a 93, 94. So he's picked up maybe a mile an hour. But, uh, you know, that, that seems like a stretch. But obviously the Red Sox would like Barnes to get straightened out. And the question here is whether that can happen in a week with some side work or whether whatever is amiss with him is going to take longer to get untangled. Talking of Richards, Cora specifically mentioned that he's got that uh, really terrific slider, and the problem with having a fastball slider mix as a starting pitcher is that they figure it out after a couple of times through, and uh, maybe the two-pitch mix with a really devastating slider works better in the bullpen as a closer. And talking about the possibility that Barnes himself may end up uh, getting back into the role. Cora did mention that they were looking at, is he tipping his pitches? Uh, is he overusing his fastball? Has he lost command on some kind of mechanical issue? So it, I don't think they've given up on Matt Barnes quite, but uh, they're chasing a playoff spot. Every win matters. And if you're blowing saves to the likes of the Minnesota Twins over and over again, they, you can't really expect them to just stand by and do nothing until they do get it straightened out. So it's an interesting situation in Boston, as it is in Los Angeles with the rotation. The Angels put right-handed starter Dylan Bundy on the 10-day IL with a shoulder problem. He's going to miss more than the 10 days is the word I hear from Jock Thompson's report in playing time today. Reed Detmers is also out with a COVID uh, IL stint. Uh, Austin Warren, not as big of a deal, I suppose. And Patrick Sandoval, of course, was lost probably for the rest of the season with a back problem. Uh, other than starting... Shoy Otani three times a week. Uh, what are the Angels going to do here? 
<laughs> I mean, that's exactly right. It, you're kind of the master of the unanswerable question here. Thanks for uh, you know teeing me up for an easy answer on this one. You know, they're down. You know, three starters now. Sandoval might be done for the year, as you say. Uh, you know, Reed Debras was getting an audition in the rotation. That gets short circuited now. There's not a lot here, and like you say, they you know the ones they have. You know, they're down a couple of starters to begin with, and the ones that remain in the rotation like Otani aren't even really every fifth day guys anyway. So there's nobody to you know pick up the slack here. If you look at what they have on hand, there's there's Otani, of course. There's Jose De Suarez. I mean, Berea's been back in the rotation recently, and now he probably gets the stick. Alex Cobb's been surprisingly decent all year, and you know, but he's up, but he's on the IL right now. He's probably the first one back of all these guys. He might be back in early September, so that there's a little bit of help on the way. Uh, but you know, they've been turning to the likes of Jose Quintana lately, and I mean, he's just done. <laughs> he's got, I mean, he's been getting, you know, uh, he came back uh, for a spot start last week, and you know, it was his first start since May, and he went out there with uh, one and a third, seven hits, five runs. But now I think we're probably going to see more of him. So, you know. I'm not 100% sure exactly where the spinning wheel lands here, but I'm, I, I can say with some confidence that we're not interested. In Cleveland, the rotation has also taken a bit of a blow with the loss of uh, Tristan McKenzie, who's having a terrific comeback after returning to the uh, starting lineup in Cleveland. He's been really good, but now he's out. And uh, Tom Kephart covers the Cleveland for playing time today. Apparently they've recalled Logan Allen and they're looking forward to Aaron Savali and Shane Bieber coming back. But in the meantime, what goes on in the Cleveland rotation? Yeah, just given where we are in timing, it's, you know, you have to ask the question whether this is a season ender for McKenzie, just because getting the shoulder to calm down and then get him back in the rotation in the span of you know five weeks sounds a little bit unlikely. And boy, you're exactly right. He was, you know, he's been terrific since, uh, you know, a, a fairly brief stint in the minors in the, like the second half of June. They sent him down, and he, he, you know, and since he's come back, he's been a completely different guy. His, um, you know, his second half numbers, which represent the post call up, he's got eight walks to forty eight strikeouts in forty nine innings. So he's striking out one guy in one guy in inning, and then you know the walk rate is down to four percent. I mean, a four percent walk rate, twenty six percent strikeout rate. That, th- those are you know elite numbers for a starting pitcher, backed up by the skills. He's got a 13% swing strike rate, 70% first pitch strike rate, which fully backs up that suddenly impeccable control. So just a massive loss for any you know not so much the Indians because they're not going anywhere, but for anybody who is using McKenzie in their fantasy lineups. Um, unlike the Angels, it seems like the Indians are going to get some rotation help soon to uh, backfill McKenzie here. Aaron Savali is out on the rehab stint, and he's probably the one who plugs into this spot first. And then a little further out, maybe earlier into September, we might see see Shane Bieber soon. He's got a couple of more hurdles to clear in his rehab, but he's at least throwing on the side, and that probably maps to a rehab start. I would imagine next week, and you know, get to, get maybe two or three of those, and. He should be ready to go. So then at that point, it's probably Sam and he's who gets bumped out of the rotation too. Uh, but you know, Bieber in particular is still a little bit risky there because a couple of things still have to go right on that rehab. 
Good news in Houston in a sort of way. Of course, they're glad to have Alex Bregman back from the IL after a long time. I don't know if you saw the photo of him uh, online or on Twitter anywhere, but he's grown a gigantic beard and he looks like he just came out of the woods. Uh, pretty interesting look for the traditionally clean-cut uh, Alex Bregman. Uh, the Astros optioned uh, third baseman Jacob Wilson back to AAA. But the question that Jock Thompson raised I thought was an interesting one. Oledmus Diaz has been playing very well since he got back from the IL right after the All-Star break. A 330 batting average, 870 OPS. He has four homers and 20 RBIs. So Jock says Diaz deserves to play, but the problem is in a loaded Houston lineup, where is Oledmus Diaz supposed to play? Yeah, a couple of things. You know, my, my first thought, I did see the Bregman picture and coming out of the woods is entirely good reference. I, I was going to go with the uh, Tom Hanks and Castaway corollary reference. You know, he looks like he's been on a, a deserted on an island for 40 years or something. Uh, but back back to the topic at hand, you know, this is sort of the unheralded um, secret to why the Astros have been able to hold on this year, despite so many injuries that they're still leading the West, and it's because they've gotten so many contributions from guys like Diaz and Abraham Toro before they traded them, and then a couple of guys in the outfield, too. Uh, you know, Jake Myers has been excellent filling in, filling in, and Chaz McCormick has helped hold down center field while the revolving door of injuries and COVID protocols and everything has punished this team. Um, and that, But as inevitably happens, when the studs come back, the guys who did such capable filling work need to you know, step to the side of the stage, right? Uh, so Jock suggests that in the near term, both Jose Altuve and Michael Brantley have been scuffling a little bit, uh, maybe a little bit worn down here in the dog days. And obviously those guys are part of the part of the core of the lineup here, but he suggests that we might see a little bit of Diaz filling in for Altuve and Brantley to get those guys a couple of days each or a couple of days over the next couple of weeks to... Uh, to, to recharge a little bit for the stretch run. And Diaz is quite versatile, so Bregman may, is probably not going to be a seven-days-a-week guy right when he comes back. And you know Carlos Correa could get a break here, too. Diaz could play anywhere. So uh, Jock's projections, I think, are pretty accurate, or they, they passed the spell test for me, and that across all of the positions except catcher, he's given Diaz 5 10 15% playing time here and there and it adds up to 65 percent so he's projecting him to be still a more than a halftime player uh it, despite the fact that the studs are all back and he, and he has essentially does not have a primary position anymore I was looking at that same depth chart and I came to the same conclusion that you did and of course that Jock did in laying out the playing time this way. It looks like Ledmus Diaz is is getting into that Tony Phillips role from yesteryear where the club uses him judiciously to spot a guy here and there and it kind of works out to everybody loses you know 3% of their playing time for the good because they get to rest or maybe DH on a day or two and, and stay fresh for the playoffs, which has got to be their primary interest at this point. Yeah, that's right. And as long as they hold the, you know, their uh, five or six games up on the A's and the Mariners at this point, and as long as they hold that kind of cushion, then I think they can they can afford to have, you know, seven or eight of their regulars, quote unquote, in the lineup every night and have Diaz be the ninth guy until the, uh, you know, unless that league gets down to just a couple of games and then they have to pedal over the metal a little bit. But they, you know, they have a little bit of wiggle room to continue to try to keep one uh, one eye on keeping the West locked up and one eye on sort of trying to refill everybody's tanks before uh, before we get into late September and October. 
But you're right uh, about some of these guys who've been filling in. Chaz McCormick's been terrific, and uh, Jake Myers has been a solid contributor. So it'll be interesting to see how they manage this in the off season. You know, they've got contract considerations, and it must be nice for Houston to understand that they've got these kind of this caliber of player waiting in the wings as they did with Kyle Tucker a couple of years ago. And, and, you know, they actually, a lot of people thought mistreated Kyle Tucker because they were slow, slow rolling his playing time and, and, you know, popping him in and out and not giving him an extended run. But here's Kyle Tucker, one of the better players in the league in his sort of third or fourth year of that kind of treatment. And maybe this is something that Houston has figured out among the many things that their analytics department is figuring out for them. Yeah, 100% right. And, you know, furthermore, this seems to me like an area where another area where smart organizations are distinguishing themselves and not just in COVID times, but because the, you know, the rampant trend expansion of uh, injuries around baseball, you know, predates COVID. That's been going on for years now. We study that data and DL days are, you know, the last five years in a row or something like that are all record setting year upon record setting year in terms of people on the DL. And teams like the Astros and you know, the Cardinals are another one that come to mind that can turn up these good replacement players seemingly out of nowhere when they need them to have the depth in the organization to do that, even if they're not highly talented prospects like, say, Tucker was when he was getting yanked around. But to be able to drop a Chaz McCormick or Jake Myers in and have them you know, hold the fort while those injuries are happening is such, a, you know, such an advantage and such a distinguishing factor. For these teams, it does seem like you know there are some franchises that are you know flat better at that than having those you know that garage full of spare parts around than others, and the Astros are clearly one that's doing that right. Yeah, and the garage full of spare parts, to extend the analogy, I mean, lots of guys have spare parts in their garage like I do, but they're covered with rust and, you know, you'd have totally. to you'd have to hammer them with a pipe wrench to, to get the rust off just to make them at all useful. And it looks like Houston's doing a good job, not only understanding what talent they have in that in the lower levels of their depth chart, but also being able to develop it and, and get it optimized to be used when they when they need to use it and I think that's an important thing. Yeah, this is a bit of a tangent ray but to what extent do you think the increase in DL days has been caused by the reduction in the length of the standard IL stint from 15 days to 10? I was listening to a podcast the other day and they were talking about this issue and one of the people talking said, you know, it's a lot easier to put a guy on the on the IL for 10 days than 15 because it's only, you know, one start for a pitcher. You know, it's, a, a, what, 10 games or so instead of 16 or whatever it is. It's a big difference, and it maybe makes the teams more comfortable with doing it. Yeah, it's true. And there's some data that I always look at in the offseason when we're prepping the forecaster data that I haven't looked at. Uh, just yet this year, but like one of the things we look at to answer that question is how many of the DL days or the DL stints are actually the minimum, right? Because if somebody is actually only out for the 10, 10 days, then sure, it's probably likely they only needed three or four or five or six. But once the DL stint gets to the 11th day, well, now we know that, you know, that they, were, they really needed all that time, right? So that that's one metric we look at. Ron Chandler was telling me the other day, we were having a conference call about prepping for uh, the forecaster and uh, you know, he run. You know, one of the studies that he always updates in the book every year is how many players in the ADP top 300 end up on the IL, and so that's just a reflection of you know not just total IL days, but like uh, among the guys we drafted or cared about in March, what's the impact? 
and we're already at the high water mark. It's like 63% of the top 300 or something. And we've still got six weeks to go in the season. You know, we, we I don't think, I think 60 was the previous high water mark. We're over that. And obviously some more guys are going to go out for the first time in the next six weeks. So it's an epidemic. Well, that's a word that we probably shouldn't use. <laughs> um, it, it, it's widespread and rampant. How about that? Uh, it's not just because of COVID. And I, maybe we're not surprised by it this year, given the, you know, we talked a lot in the preseason about the fear of muscle strains and how people are going to hold up for the six-month season coming off the two-month season. Uh, so maybe we're not totally surprised by it, but fact of the matter is it's changing probably player. And in some ways it could be viewed as a positive development because the willingness of teams to put their players on the IL so that they can recover from injuries rather than the not-so-long-ago rule of spin on it, rub some dirt on it, you'll be okay tomorrow – and exacerbating injuries maybe in the long run is helping the teams keep their players on the field for more games than they would have otherwise. Although, of course, the longer you do that, the likelier they are to leave as free agents. So you, there's an incentive for them not to do that. It's all a, a really complicated equation. There's a lot of variables moving around in there when you start talking about how the IL rules work. And, of course, we have a CBA negotiation coming up, which may change all of that anyway. Uh, moving along, uh, how about Baltimore? They have a prospect, Jemai Jones. We've been wondering about when he might come up. Well, he's up. They've put him in at second base for now, and they optioned Richie Martin back to AAA. There goes $90 fab for me. Uh, Michael Franco is back too, but I noticed that his playing time got cut by 85%. What's going on in the ever-changing world of the Orioles infield? Yeah, we talked about Richie Martin last week, and that turned out to be a pretty short stint, right? Uh, so now the wheels... The wheel stands falls on Jemai Jones, who's interesting from a fantasy perspective in a slightly different profile. I mean, he got a decent cup of coffee with the Angels, well, I think it was last year, and he didn't show much. Actually, it wasn't a decent cup of coffee with seven at bats. So like um, but you know, there's there's some power speed in the profile here. He's got double digit homers and stolen bases in uh, 290 plate appearances in the minors. Uh, you know, there's some batting average questions there, some contact questions. But, hey, it's the Orioles who just lost 19 games. Things can't get any worse. So, you know, they're going to take a look at Jemai Jones. And, you know, even though we talked about Martin last week and his cup of coffee would seem pretty short, I, you know, Jones is only 23. He's a at least conceivable part of the future for the Orioles. And I think he's going to get a lot of at-bats over the next month. Is he going to do enough with them to justify throwing a few more of my fab dollars towards him? <laughs> I, you know, I think I, I think it's a possibility. I think I think there might be some value there. You know, it's funny because you know the profile is interesting for a short sample because, like I said, he offers at least a smattering of power and speed, which obviously can help you in the standings. And in a short four or five week sample, you know the bat the contact slash. Uh, batting average concerns might get obscured. You know, he might hang up uh, such a high enough BABIP that even if he's only making contact 60-something percent of the time, that the batting average doesn't kill you. And you, your batting average might be cast in near concrete anyway, right? You know, what one, one guy for 80 at-bats or whatever it's going to be may not move the needle that much. So, you know, as always, contact, context matters. But there are, there are situations where I think he could be a uh, useful fantasy piece over the next month. In Texas, they've had a fairly big COVID outbreak. Who would have thought it in Texas? Uh, and they brought back Leotis Tavares from AAA. He kind of struggled in the early part of the year, but he was really banging in AAA. 
Rod Truzdell's covering this story. What's going on with Leotis Tavares and the Texas Rangers? I will confess that Leotis Tavares, I'm not going to say I forgot about Leotis Tavares, but he had escaped my mind for the chunk of the summer. And, you know, he was very forgettable in the, in April, and that's maybe that's why that happened. I mean, he, you know, on the one hand, you could argue that the 46 at bat sample size he got uh, before he got sent down was not nearly enough for him to get untracked. But then again, he hit 087 with those 46 at bats. So on the other, you know, the other side of that coin is you can imagine that the Rangers did not need to see a lot of that before they realized that uh, he needed to go and straighten some things out. And to your point, he did straighten some things out in the minors. Uh, you know, he's been pick, picking it up. He's got actually 17 home runs, which is fairly, uh, fairly surprising for what we thought was a speed first profile. Uh, and he's been walking 13% of the time, which is really good news for a guy who we know can run. So, you know, I, I don't, I'll be curious to see whether they drop, keep him at the top of the lineup. I noticed he was there the other night, uh, trying, trying to spark this, uh, you know, watered down struggling Rangers lineup. But again, you know, now that you know, they took their time before calling him back up, and I think they only called him up now because he didn't have COVID and that distinguished, distinguished him from all the other options. But if he sticks, and it seems like he probably should, then, you know, this is another case where another, uh, could be a lot of at-bats and some power and speed over the next month. I was reviewing the Rangers' uh, depth chart at BaseballHQ.com's depth chart center, and it's pretty interesting because I have both Jason Martin and Curtis Terry in my tout AL-only league. Uh, Jason Martin's uh, something of an outfielder, and Curtis Terry is something of not a position player at all. He's a DH primarily. But I was looking down the list of, of the Texas Rangers, and it looks like there's about 35 guys who are ticketed for 20% or more playing time. And I'm starting to wonder whether anybody other than maybe Adolis Garcia, Nick Solax at 60, uh, Nate Lau's going to play. Is it Lau or Low? I never remember those two guys. Uh, he's Low. The, it's Lau in Tampa, and, and, and Nate is Low. <laughs> well, Nate is high on this list. Uh, he's probably the <laughs> highest guy that they have. But uh, listen to some of these names. Yohel uh, Pozo is a, a DH. Curtis Terry's a DH. Willie Calhoun's a DH. Jonah Himes got DH time. And they've got six guys ticketed for at least some playing time at third base. Is there a danger here that with Texas rocking and rolling the roster like this that other than the three guys I mentioned, that none of these guys is really worth rostering at this point? Yeah, and it's funny, you, you mentioned a bunch of guys who, you know, we were were entirely valid speculations for at least playing time and regular at-bats, and you didn't hit the one I picked up in a couple of my leagues last week, which was DJ Peters, who seems like he's getting some time as well. Uh, I, he was playing center field, though, so I'm, I am curious to see if Tavares is going to stick, what happens with Peters. You know, Peters is hitting all of a buck 67, but he's got five home runs and 17 RBIs and 100 at-bats, so he's managed to be somewhat productive despite... Uh, you know, some some more than more than minor batting average challenges. But you're right. This is a this is a very fluid situation. And unfortunately, even reading box scores this weekend isn't going to tell us much because so many guys have been on and off the COVID list that their you know their first criteria for making out a lineup every day is okay, who's actually healthy enough to play today? Which is not necessarily going to be dovetail with okay, who do we think is actually part of the future at these positions? It's going to take us, a, you know, maybe a couple of weeks to try to get a read on, you know, if we're, if we're trying to look ahead to next year, who, you know, who, who Texas has some uh, faith in or ranks a little bit higher than some of the other ones because the, uh, you know, there's a lot of smoke mixed in here. 
There certainly is. And finally, Ray, uh, Doug Dennis has been covering bullpens for BaseballHQ.com since the days of Elroy Face, and he keeps coming up with new approaches and new twists on old approaches. And this week he had a really interesting column called uh, Using Basic Skill Indicators to Find Future Value. I thought this was super interesting, and I know you did too. I did, and I love Doug because, you know, Doug has, as you said, has a lifetime's worth of experience of breaking down bullpens. And, you know, there was a subtle tone of, I don't need all your blasted StatCast metrics. I know how to figure out these relievers with, with, with like, you know, basically rubbing two sticks together, right? <laughs> Which, maybe that maybe that should be actually just projecting Doug's at it. Where's my, where's my goat article, bones but, that I can uh, yeah. toss the goat bones and see what's going on here? <laughs> but, but, you know, kidding aside, you know, the approach here is entirely sound. He basically sits here and says, okay, let's look at top dollar values for relievers this year. But keep in mind that dollar values are going to be heavily influenced by wins and saves for relievers. And the top dollar values end up going to the guys who have the great skills plus the guys who got all the wins and saves. But if you want to figure out who those guys are in the future, just look at the guys who have the great skills but haven't put up the wins and saves. And wait for the wins and saves sort of, you know, luck to find you in the future because you can't predict the, you know, especially the reliever wins, the, you know, the Brent Suter hanging up a dozen wins this year is, you know, is, is completely uh, sort of a black swan kind of event. So we can't get too excited about that, but we can look at the guys who have the same skills as Brent Suter and might find themselves in that kind of fortunate situation down the road, which I thought was, you know, pretty creative way to look at the, uh, at our reliever charts. And so who did he like? Give us a couple of names. Yeah, so so sticking to the AL here, I'll reference Brandon Suter just because of the 12 wins, but sticking to the AL, uh, you know, guys like Andrew Kittredge have been some of the, uh, some some of the winners earlier this year, but, um, you know, Colin McHugh has been, you know, hanging up incredible ratios and now seems to have just found himself picking up a save or two in the last week. But, you know, then you look deeper and, you know, Paul Sewell by all, or Seawald, I guess it is, by all accounts is just a journeyman reliever. I know Mets fans are still kind of snickering about him as the lost piece of the uh, Edwin diaz Jared Kelnick deal. But Seawald's been great this year and, you know, is now probably staking a claim to having a continued life in, in that bullpen if he comes back. Aaron Bummer's another one in the AL who's been – Really impressive. Kendall Graveman, of course, changed teams. We talked about him when he got traded to Houston, but he's been absolutely brilliant since reinventing himself as a reliever, and we'll have to see where he falls next year. But Doug's overall point here is if you worry about those guys who have the great strikeout rates, the great strikeouts minus walks, which is really his key metric for finding finding these guys, then you almost can't go wrong. You, you know, he can't guarantee, nobody can guarantee that you're going to find the guy who picks up double-digit double wins and saves. But if you if you throw your darts at the guys with the massive BPPs and the massive K-minus BP, then you're going to be in good shape. Doug did mention that the skills indicators he uses in his column are based just on this season, and that makes some very small sample sizes indeed. I, I looked at the names and I thought, you know, if you went back to 2018 and combined all those years, these skills would be pretty stable over that time. Were there any concerns about the small sample size when you read the column? Yeah, there's uh, that's always a challenge with relievers. And 
it's just kind of the world that Doug in particular lives in. But I think he's doing the right thing and steering everybody to focus on the elite tier of the skills, right? Because, you know, a little wiggle in someone's skill or picking up an extra strikeout per nine or a couple of percent of strikeout rate year to year in a reliever in a 40, 50, 60 inning sample, you know, that's where you might get in trouble chasing somebody just had a little extra break on their slider and then they came back to spring training the next year and it was gone again, right? Or they couldn't find the same arm slot or grip or whatever it was. But these elite skills, you know, sort of get to the point where, you know, um, you know it's not quite the same concept as uh, singular significance that Bill James touted so many years ago. But these are th- these elite level skills, even for one season, are kind of kind of those skill levels that you can't fake, right? You don't, get, you, you don't get to this tier by luck. And sure, there's always a chance someone's going to get hurt or uh, some other event's going to happen that causes their, the skills to just go belly up. But this is generally the safer depth of water to be fishing in. It's a really interesting column. I quite enjoyed it. I picked up some tips for future drafts, and that's part of what the Baseball HQ mandate is. And before we let you go, Ray, any updates on First Pitch Arizona? Yes, sir. So thanks for asking. Uh, One important piece of news, and I kind of suspect this is something a lot of people were waiting for, uh, is we announced the COVID protocols for the event this week. So this is something that as we were taking signups over the summer, we got this question a lot and it took a while to work out because it's one of those things that we had to go back and, uh, you know, this is one of the benefits of corporate ownership is that we were able to go back to you know, a massive company like Gannett and say, hey, are there other areas of the company that are doing these kind of events and what kind of protocols, you know, who can we leverage knowledge and insight from about how to do this? Because, hey, guess what? I'm not an epidemiologist, right? <laughs> so... Um, we, so we looked around, we talked to some people in Gannett. We also looked at what other places in the country are doing. And the policy we came came up with is, is actually exactly the same one that, for instance, uh, I know that they put in place for Broadway shows starting this fall when Broadway reopened. So uh, we're going to do what we feel it's our responsibility to, as hosts of the event, to try to ensure that everyone is going to have a you know the, the safest environment possible. And we want everyone to feel comfortable in coming. So what we have put in place is we're going to require either proof of vaccination or a very recent, like within three days of the event, negative COVID test. And that one, and if you combine that with highly encouraging, strongly recommending masking in our indoor settings, and um, you know, we're also looking at trying to move events outdoors or to ballparks or to, I don't know, the hotel parking lot, wherever we have to go uh, to try to minimize sort of indoor time. That's kind of the approach we're taking to try to keep everyone comfortable for the event. And our next, uh, you know, price deadline, our best price currently available is good through uh, next week, in next week, uh, next Friday, which I think is the fourth. So we wanted to get these in place and give everyone a week or so to marinate about possibly joining us for the event and, you know, as they're thinking about that or negotiating with their spouse or whatever, we wanted to be able to give them something to hold up and say, you see, they're doing everything they can to try to keep us safe. So that's where we stand right now. And there's only so much you can do to keep everything as safe as possible. And I think this is the, this is the approach that almost everybody that I've seen is taking. Uh, we're going to see the Blue Jays this week in Toronto, and it's uh, it's not as 
it's not even as stringent there as what you're proposing for First Pitch Arizona. They, they're not requiring uh, vaccine proof yet. Uh, I think that's coming down the road when uh, finally one of our governments figures out how to prove vaccines because right now you get a piece of like an email with a PDF in it that says, hey, you got a vaccine, which would be about as difficult to fake as a, uh, you know, the, your report card back in the days when uh, <laughs> they produced yeah, paper exactly. report cards. You know, I mean, it, it's it's not that tough to fake. So it's not being seen as a really solid way to, to protect people who want to go to Blue Jays games. But they have options at the games where they you can sit in a section where they have deliberately said most of the seats are out of bounds and you have to sit so you're 25 feet from the next guy and so forth. If you're comfortable sitting in one of the more uh, right behind the plate or by the dugouts or anything, then they're more packed in there, but they ask you to wear a mask. And when you watch the games, what you see is a lot of people with the old chin hammock approach where they put the mask on and then pull it down underneath their chin where it's doing absolutely no good unless there's a variant of chin COVID that nobody's uh, <laughs> nobody's let me <laughs> in that's on. That's why chin COVID hasn't gone on though, right? <laughs> that's because right, everyone's yeah. wearing his mask. That's right, yeah. Uh, the the uh, deniers will all say, look, they wear it around their chin. Nobody gets chin COVID. It, you, know, <laughs> you could just do that. But... Uh, yeah, I, I think that uh, this sounds like a pretty good approach, and I hope that people uh, are comfortable with it. And, of course, we have to say that if you're not comfortable with it, don't feel like, you know, that you're uh, any uh, lesser of a person for saying, you know what, I'll skip it this year. But uh, it sounds like we're going to uh, have a pretty safe event, and I hope that people finally make the decision that they can uh, come out and, and join us because it's so much fun and it's always so interesting and all that kind of stuff. Uh, how far along are you on the program? Yeah, the program has ended up taking uh, has taken a bit of a backseat while we it took way too, way longer than we thought to get all of these health and safety items worked out. But uh, just this week, we sent out our invitation to uh, the usual slate of industry writers who. Um, you know, have, have, have dotted the event in the past or who we've been inviting for several years and have been able to get there. You know, people who appeared at First Pitch Florida or on some of our other First Pitch stops in the past. And like you say, you know, these are all very individual decisions. So we're kind of working through the who's going to be there and who's not. Some people have circumstances that, you know, carry for elderly parents or whatever, where even if they're vaccinated, even in light of our protocols, they're you know not comfortable doing it this year. And we totally get that. So, you know, we're building the roster right now and then uh you know sort of in the team building exercise we'll first we'll build the roster and then we'll assign them all positions right so <laughs> that's the next step and do you have any kind of handle on uh, the baseball hq staff and their roles yes yeah, so, you know same thing we're uh, we're counting noses right now and uh, you know certainly uh, a bunch of the familiar names will be there uh you know we were talking about doug i'm pretty sure doug's coming um and uh we will uh have them uh, you know the hq role was always out there as the you know sort of support staff you know some guys like you moderate sessions or are on panels but there's always a you know huge crew of hq people who are running the drafts and you know manning the registration desk and all of those sorts of things and uh, that's where you uh, get to face time with the hq staff as part of the event so that that will be uh, true as always and if, if the staff's a little lighter it'll just mean Brent and I are wearing a few more hats and running between the main stage and the registration desk or something. And hey, that's fine too. It's still, you, you can't make me work hard enough because it's still the most fun week of the year. You know what I thought? I I thought that maybe Baseball HQ staff, you know, everybody at the event gets a lanyard with a, with a name tag. 
maybe we could print the uh, the Baseball HQ staff ones in yellow or in some kind of color that oh, yeah. stands out yep. so that you can see one from 35 feet away and then say, uh, I don't know where the next session is. Oh, there's a guy with an orange name tag. I'll run over and talk to him. I mean, it's a very loosey-goosey environment anyway if you don't know where you're going you know even if you don't know how you're getting to the game you can just tap the next guy on the shoulder if you've never met him before and say can you give me a ride to the game i see you have a car and they'll say sure hop in and uh i know for a fact that at least one very good friendship has been made exactly in yep. that fashion i i know of more than one although it's funny i, I joke every year that 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 way the rental car thing works out and getting everyone rides to games is like the first pitch Arizona equivalent of the miracle of the loaves and the fishes, right? No matter what happens, no matter, you know, I feel like fewer, fewer people rent a car every year because they know they can get a ride. And yet there's still always enough cars. This year will be like the ultimate test of that because of the, like, I'm already hearing from people that there's this massive rental car shortage and, you know, rental cars are like super expensive. So, you know, (laughs) we're going to, we're going to test that knowledge. The other thing I should point out though, along that line, while I'm saying it is that our, our host hotel this year is the Sheraton, at uh, Wrigleyville and Mesa, which is actually across the street from uh, Sloan Park, the Cubs stadium out in Arizona, so which is also a beautiful facility. But more to the point, the AFL hasn't released their schedule yet. I've actually been harassing them about that this week, and they swear they're going to have it the next couple of days. But if we get it, but if we get a couple of games at Sloan Park, we're actually going to be able to walk to the game. And how great is that going to be? That's going to be fantastic, and uh, actually. In past years, uh, Alex Becky, who's not attending this year, unfortunately, because he's got some yeah. family things going on with birthdays and, and things like that. So uh, I'm really sad about that because I really enjoy Alex's company and he's a great guy. But for the last few times at First Pitch Arizona, Alex has picked me up from the airport. And the first thing we would do is we'd go over to that Wrigleyville West area and we'd go to this restaurant he likes. I can't remember the name of it. And we'd chow down and then we'd you know, drive around a bit. And uh, if there was a game at Sloan, we'd go over and, and watch. And then we'd go to the hotel. It's a really terrific area, notwithstanding the fact that the hotel's close to the uh, to the ballpark. It's just a really nice area in general. It's well, a lot of stuff within walking distance. And, uh, of course, as you said, the ballpark. So it's all really terrific. And I hope uh, that you can find your way there. Ray, thanks very much for helping us out with the... Uh, the latest on First Pitch Arizona and, of course, all the American League news, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you, sir. Ray Murphy is a co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com and covers the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Next up, it'll be part two of our feature expert interview with Andy Andres, the baseball professor from Boston University. He'll be coming to the plate for his second appearance next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, remember, we'll have another Friday full edition for you next Friday, and we're getting ready for our end-of-season roundtable edition with Ray and Todd Zola discussing the season just passed and their looks ahead to 2022. And if you have any questions you'd like Ray and Todd and maybe me to consider, just email them to bhqradio at gmail.com or tweet your query to at Patrick Davitt and we'll answer as many questions as we can. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. PD here. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Andy Andres, the baseball professor from Boston University. Andy, welcome back. Thanks, Patrick. You were a, a pioneer in bringing baseball into the university classroom. You're a university professor. Can you walk us through the early days of how you managed to finagle baseball into your university classrooms? Well, it, it started in 2003, again, when um, 
two other guys on my softball team, we were just kind of baseball nerds and loved talking about Bill James all the time and what he wrote. We had all his books. We enjoyed Moneyball. Book came out in 2003. And we were at Tufts at the time. And Tufts has this experimental college, which allows for strange courses, courses that don't fit in the normal department curriculum. And so uh, we proposed the baseball class. Tufts loved the idea. And we started teaching baseball analytics uh, in 2003. Um, other courses were around at the time, but they were stats courses. In other words, I, I would teach statistics using baseball data. There were a handful of classes around like that, but we took a different tack right away. We didn't teach statistics. We taught straight baseball analytics. Um, and so that was the start. And since then, we've had various wrinkles. There's a course out there on the edX platform that's basically like a baseball analytics textbook. We put that together about five years ago. And you can go to edX.org and look up baseball analytics and really walk through class we developed. It's free, freely available. And I'd say the there are so many young people at the forefront of baseball analytics who, who sign up for the class. They're still signing up for the class. They're still taking the, uh, you know, re, uh, listening and watching the videos, doing the exercises, learning some introductory programming. And um, so that course on edX that we developed is still very, very popular. Lots and lots of people are using it to learn the fundamentals of baseball analytics. I know one of your students has a pretty high position in Tampa. Oh, yeah. Uh, I've got students in high positions, uh, the Dodgers, the Nationals, Tampa, Indians. We have a lot of success uh, from uh, students from, from my courses. They're all over baseball now. And what is the status of baseball in other universities across the uh Major League Baseball landscape, at least to uh, Canada and the United States, there must be interest in sports analytics. Maybe even if if there's uh, analytics going on in other sports that you might be aware of, what's the position of sports analytics in the larger academic community, as far as you know? Well, uh, I'd say that with the increase in the interest in data science, uh, is is you know gone along with an increase in sports analytics really just sports data science is what we're doing. So um, as universities have developed their data science curriculum, their majors in, in data science, there's been various specialized courses developed in sports data science, sports analytics. And we were, we, I, you know, I still claim we were the first about, you know, 18, 19 years ago to do this, but lots and lots of universities are doing, uh, ha they have sports analytics courses. Syracuse even has a sports analytics major. And it's, it's not just baseball, it's, it's all the other major professional sports. So you can get jobs now working in professional American football, professional football all over the world. Uh, you can get jobs in basketball, in, working for NBA teams, working for hockey teams, and baseball teams well so it, there are jobs in all the major professional sports for 
you know, smart young people who understand the principles of data science. I was going to ask you if anybody has a degree program, but you uh, already alluded to uh, the Syracuse program. Are there other academic disciplines that are embracing the game that is a little bit new to the academy? Well, I, I think you're asking, you know, what should, what, what do, what majors, what lines, what, what courses do people take to, to be prepared to get these jobs in sports analytics? And basically today you should take some statistics courses, at least two or three, where you're understanding modeling and getting introduced to machine learning and AI uh, so that you, and then modeling specifically, because that's the key is developing models with data set to understand how games function, where there's market efficiencies, drive in money ball, or where there's places that you value a player, you put a value on a player like a horse, that you can use that to help acquire players, acquire talent, and make your team perform better. Uh, so you, you'd want some stats classes. You're a good modeler. You'd want some computer science classes. If you have to kind of do your own work as a data scientist, you've got to be able to code your models uh, you know, in, in different programming languages. You've got to feel comfortable with coding and programming. And you really should have a feel for the itself. You really should understand the game that you're trying to be an analyst for. You have, we, in data science, we call that domain expertise. You want to be a, you want to really know baseball well if you're going to be a baseball analyst. You've got to know hockey well if you're going to be a hockey analyst. So you really need that domain expertise to really perform these jobs well. So I would say that's it. I'd say you'd, you'd want to make sure you, you're a good programmer, a good coder. You want to make sure you really have had enough statistics to understand modeling well so you can develop your own model. I was thinking also of things like our university starting to specialize or offer specialized courses in law school about the about the legal environment surrounding pro sports and contracts and so forth. Our business schools offering sports management business programs or courses, uh, kinesiology uh, departments are they specializing or looking at the kind of stuff that driveline's doing? Uh, are, are there other academic opportunities that go beyond that relatively narrow sphere that you talked about, which is data focused into the other domains uh, that exist within professional sports outside of the player assessment domain? Yeah, uh, sports management majors are pretty well developed all over the world, really for the kind of work you described, say, on the business side. So there's sports management uh, specialties in business school, law school, and uh, for undergraduate. Well, that's a pretty well-developed area. The, the newer area is this area for you know, analytics, for data science. But you're, you're right. Biomechanics is really the sort of the newest area where the trend around maybe you know, two or three years. Um, I highly recommend someone who's interested in biomechanics pick up the MVP machine by Ben Lindbergh. Uh, that book, in my mind, is the money ball of the modern era we're in in the analytics. You look at teams and what they're doing, they're hiring 
specialists in biomechanics better understand how to leverage things that driveline, how to train and leverage inside player development structures so you get the most out of your the teams on your roster. I can imagine this is true. This is true in baseball for sure, but I can imagine this is going to spread out into other sports as well. So I, I imagine biomechanics in professional American football, in professional football worldwide, hockey, basketball. There's going to be an advancement there as well, like that we've seen with driveline and biomechanics and baseball. Considering what we know about the kinetic chain when we're looking at batters or pitchers, we could learn to leverage leverage. <laughs> yes, we could. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. I've actually uh, developed a course here at Boston University, player development. So we're teaching students to do, think about player development and think about how to design projects to play development. So we read now the MVP machine, just like my early courses for analytics, we would read Moneyball. It really is a nice intro to field to understand what's going on with driveline Trevor Bauer's influence on all of this. I was looking at the uh, Tampa front office because I was trying to find the name of the student that you had and where he was to make sure that I, I was correct that he hadn't moved on because the uh, reference I saw was from 2019, I think, and just wanted to double check and make sure that there was still a, uh, an Andy Andre student still in the front office there. And then I was looking down the list of the front office. There must have been... 20 data analyst type positions, data coordinators, data analysts. And I did see a small sprinkling of people who looked like biomechanics type of people. So it's definitely filtering in. And if it was going to filter in anywhere, we would suspect that Tampa might be at the forefront. Yes. Yeah, so I should give a shout out to my former student, uh, Peter. Pete Bendix is the vice president of I think his title is baseball development, but he's vice president there. He's sort of not, he's basically number two. Uh, there's, you know, the number one and two GMs and he's next in line. I assume that Pete is going to, because Tampa has done so well with analytics and biomechanics, but I assume if there's a GM opening, uh, Pete's probably going to get some interest because Tampa is such a great example of how to use analytics and improve the team. I also have the assistant player development, the assistant director of player development for the Dodgers. The number two guy in player development the Dodgers is a former Tufts guy, Matt McGrath. I also have an assistant GM with the Nationals. That's Mike DiBartolo. Uh, he's doing really well. He loves to work there. He also has a ring from the World Series in 2019. And we also have Alex Merberg, who's the director of baseball operations for... Cleveland Indians. So those are the, I have students uh, in the Cardinals, Brewers, Phillies, um, Red Sox, and I'm forgetting probably two or three others that are sprinkled around baseball. But uh, those are the four that have risen to uh, higher levels in management. And, you know, one of them someday hopefully will become a GM. And uh, that'll be a nice, nice day for uh, the students, and also just for the course itself. I read um, 
BU magazine article about sports analytics that cited you as saying that analytics traveled along a path, started with player assessment, player acquisition, then through gameplay optimization, and on into biomechanics, and all of these areas continue to advance, of course. What do you think might be next beyond all of that? I think technology has always driven this uh, advancement in knowledge. In other words, you know, the technology of pitch FX really advanced our understanding of pitching. The technology of player tracking has advanced our understanding of defense. And the, the technology of ball flight, tracking the balls being hit, thrown, or pitched, has also improved things. I suspect that you might get better and better at player movement and reaction time. Uh, if you improve that technology, I think you understand models of defense, defense reaction. I think that other technologies of the biomechanics of fielding, of getting grounders, of, of mitt work, you know, receiving a baseball can improve the technology to understand that better, so you can understand better defense. And then, of course, what we're in right now is a real growth and understanding biomechanics. So that's just going to keep improving. The the understanding of how to train a player to throw faster uh, without getting injured are really uh, going to, and that's really going to be another big growth. At the same time, the stats available to us as fantasy managers have really advanced. The, of course, the stats that aren't available to us are probably uh, dwarf the ones that are. But, you know, it's pretty good that we get a, we can look at StatCast through Baseball Savant and all of these kind of things. But how much, Andy, do you think those advanced StatCast stats are really helping fantasy managers succeed in playing the actual game of fantasy baseball? Well, I think, I think there's some a lot of stuff on StatCast, which is really good. Um, you know, the basic principle here is that, you know, Ron has been talking about this forever, Ron Chandler, you want to acquire the talent and skills, not necessarily the output. So Ron's, you know, Ron's innovation way back when, a couple, a couple of his big innovations that really established him as such a important fantasy expert over the years, is that basic principle, you know, the basic principle of acquiring skills and talents, projecting skills and talents rather than outcomes, because we know outcomes are noisier than the skill talent. In other words, that there are, uh, they're projectable, okay, much more so than outcomes. So um, that, that principle is really um, where StatCast data can be useful. Okay, so we can look at the skill and talent of, you know, old school would have been walk rate. You know, that says something about a batter's ability to discern the strike zone. But we can get now a combination of skills and talents with stat caps. Uh, you know, the, the way they do speed is very, very interesting. And I, I love it so much more than just looking at base advancement and stolen bases and caught stealing rates. So their speed score is terrific to get that skills and talents. Their expected stats are really good too. So I would look at, you know, baseball savant for expected statistics because it's a better metric of projectable skill and talent than you would just get from outcome. Okay. So 
expected WOBA is really good. Now, the expected WOBAs uh, that the teams have, in other words, the models built within the teams are much richer and better than what we see on Savant. But still, fantasy players should be thinking about expected WOBA, okay, both on the pitcher and batter side, to look at a more projectable set of skills and talents that will be important for baseball performance. So I love looking at Savant and my fantasy work uh, for looking at expected Highly recommended for fantasy uh, players to do that, do that kind of work. Uh, get to Savant, look at expected statistics, understand them better. Um, you know, but there's a lot of great data out there from a lot of different sites. Uh, HQ's got a lot of great stuff too, and they're, and they're trying to really put together different models also on how to improve fantasy performance. So a um, lot of great uh, data for fantasy players, uh, I would say speed scores, uh, you know, on fantasy, uh, on baseball savant, and also speeds, uh, the expected statistics uh, uh, are really, really useful for fantasy. How close do you think we might be getting to the stats being so incredibly granular that they actually start losing utility as far as uh, fantasy playing is concerned if you focus on just fastball velocity that you can see on savant or the exit velocity of a batted ball that is too granular so i would recommend you know these higher level things like the models of you know expected woba or there's expected batting average if you want to just do batting average i like the idea of an expected batting average or expected obp based on quality of contact and and the kind of the launch angles combined with exit velocities to get those barrel rates and so forth i think they're intuitively they seem like they'd be very predictive because they seem more like skills than outcomes you know i know the outcome is the ball got hit at 27 degrees at 103 miles an hour but the underlying skill is the ability to and the hand-eye coordination and the strength and the technique to hit the ball that hard in that place as difficult as it is and i wonder i think the focus is going to end up being on projectability of stats there's a lot of talk about when when do stats stabilize and i think that's important in season if you're trying to assess if a performance is a factor of fluke but i think for looking at your auction planning or your draft planning in a draft the what we need to be striving for is identifying the stats that are most projectable, the sticky kind of stats that stay with the player and can be more relied upon to make player assessments. Yeah, I agree. And, and this is why I, I go back to both the history of this, which is Ron Chandler emphasizing it, and his projections, baseball HQ, and these new these new much more projectable, much more predictive stats. I know from your YouTube videos that you're also interested in biomechanical analysis and coaching. What do you think the fantasy implications are for those advancements? Yeah, that's, that's probably harder to see uh, how it applies to fantasy play, um, but it, it certainly applies to baseball. Um, I think in general, 
we as baseball fans, not as fantasy players, can appreciate all the advancements in biomechanics and training and player development. Uh, and I do think it's going to increase just this, the outcomes of uh, baseball. You know, balls are being hit pretty hard. Uh, pitchers are really, they're really maximizing their ability to locate, spin it, and throw it hard. Um, and they're also being smart about, you know, se sequencing is getting better and better. How to approach different batters is getting better and better. All of this is really much more of a baseball improvement, um, you know, as we, you know, just as baseball fans, we're seeing real advancements. Okay, that are really kind of fun. I'm not sure how biomechanics is really going to impact fantasy. Fantasy is a lot of, you know, understanding how to set up rosters and how to how to project a player. Um, and you know, like I said, uh, there's there's advanced uh, places to get advanced data, but that's still the fundamentals of, of fantasy. I'm still not sure how biomechanics is going to improve my ability as a fantasy. How about using the organizations themselves as proxies for biomechanical changes and improvements? I'm thinking of, I heard the other day on a podcast that the San Francisco Giants have like 24 assistant coaches now and some of them are devoting their time almost exclusively to these biomechanical changes especially where pitching is concerned and I wonder if the secret sauce for the next couple of years in fantasy baseball anyway might be to figure out which teams are doing it really well the Giants of course Kevin Gosman and uh, Di Scalfani and guys like that take them off the scrap heap retune them with a heavy emphasis on biomechanics and turn them into really solid fantasy baseball pitching assets. And I wonder if we knew who the five or six teams in baseball were that are doing that the best, Tampa probably as well, whether we might use it as some kind of indicator that we want to value up the pitchers or whatever it is that they're specializing in on those teams when it comes to assessing them for our fantasy purposes. You know, if I'm looking at halfway through the draft and I've got three or four pitchers and one of them happens to be on San Francisco and the other one happens to be on somewhere where the organization doesn't appear to be as adept at that kind of thing, that maybe I'm going to, I'm going to lean towards the San Francisco pitcher over the other pitcher because I trust the organization. Yeah, that, that makes complete sense. Uh, but that is keeping track of, uh, you know, where, where good analysts go. So a major influence, I'm sure, on the Giants was the move of Brian Bannister, hiring of Brian Bannister, the Red Sox, out, out to the Giants. Uh, and I'm sure that's really changed the whole sort of structure of all the different analysts there and the coaches there because Brian really understands so much of this work. But, that, but you're right. I mean, it, there's on the margins, yeah, take, take the Giants this, this, these next few years, the Giants might have found a little secret sauce. Certainly the Rays have found the secret sauce. But the teams with the best, the best most tricked-out analytics staff are the Yankees, the Dodgers, the Rays, the Indians are great. Um, you know, so, so are Cubs are great. 
So there's a lot of great teams. The Giants are doing really well again. So, yeah, I, on the margins, I'd do that. But I'm still not sure how biomechanics is going to impact the fantasy you know, decision. But I always default to raise pitchers. I've done that for years. You know, when I'm, you know, in any kind of auction or draft situation, I do like bumping up the rate. Not their closers, though. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I so many of my leagues, I just punt saves. I, I I don't know why I do that. I just don't like. I don't like the game of getting getting closers because I I think I'm much more of a purist baseball fan than a lot of my fantasy you know friends in fantasy. I I much prefer getting great baseball players. So I don't know. It's a funny thing. I always punt saves. Well, it makes sense in a lot of formats if you can redirect the money to uh, in an auction or the draft slots to other kinds of targets. Uh, but get, getting back to the idea of picking the player by looking at his team and looking at biomechanics, there was for a while a lot of buzz in the fantasy writing world, the fantasy media world, where we would get a notification that so-and-so has gone to driveline or so-and-so has gone to the the one in Texas or so-and-so has gone to some kind of advanced coaching facility and everybody would leap on that and say, the fact that he's going to the facility means he's going to be better in the coming year. And over time, some of them do get better and some of them don't. And I, I wonder, why do you think it is that if if we have this biomechanical coaching so advanced that in uh, cases it often doesn't work? Well, I would go back to the skills and outcomes. I, I can actually train you to be the best baseball player you can be. That's the whole purpose of player development, That's the whole purpose of what driveline and all the other biomechanics specialists are trying to do, to make you the best play, baseball player you can be. But then there's still this variable of outcome, which is what the game is. The game is looking at outcome. Fantasy is looking at outcome. Fantasy doesn't measure Fantasy measures outcome. So there's this there's this other wrinkle that's always going to be there. Um, so, yeah, there's going to be noise in the game itself versus what we, what we train. There is nobody on the San Francisco Giants training people to get saved. Nobody. Okay? That's just not happening. That's what we play with, right? So there's, there's going to be inherent noise forever. Uh, yeah, on the margins, if they go to driveline, that might be helpful. On the margins, if you, you choose a raised pitcher over another pitcher and you're looking at overall performance, some sort of like ERA or whip category, yeah. You, you know, on the margins, those might be slight advantages. Of uh, but still, remember, at the end of the day, Ron got it right. The thing that is projectable, the thing that is predictive is skill and talent and not outcome. How much impact can a pitcher going to driveline be if the pitcher doesn't have just the right physiological makeup? Too small, too short, too fat, uh, not enough fast twitch muscles. I know some of that can be trained in, but to what extent is the raw material important in the development of this these player attributes that are biomechanically enhanced? Well, that goes back to just the overall general question of, you know, who's going to be the best performers. 
if you and I went to driveline and spent five years dedicating ourselves to being the best baseball player we could be, we still wouldn't sniff professional baseball. We just wouldn't. So the foundation of your own physiology, your own biomechanics, your own, you know, phenotype, though that that is where you start. You start with you and I, Patrick, we're not gonna go anywhere. But if you start with, you know, people with these very uh, athletic uh, traits, you can train them to be the best they can be. And that's that's the whole point of player development. And once you do that, then they can be you know, ready to play at the highest level, whatever sport they're playing. So, yeah, it, it, every individual has adaptability. You can change any individual. But the ones that are going to make an impact in professional sports are the extremely athletic. And so, yeah, you got to start with uh, some some phenotype. You got to start with the right genes, essentially, to be able to, to be able to play at the highest level. And the implication of that, if you think about it in the long term, is China or East Germany, where they pick kids out at you know kindergarten and they say this kid looks like he's got the phenotype to be a discus thrower, and this kid could be a gymnast, you know, and and uh, and isolate them and start training them when they're six or seven years old. And eventually it gets corrupted in the, the case of East Germany, for instance, where the women's swimmers look like the uh, men's basketball team at a lot of uni- universities in the United States, you know, with uh, facial hair and all of these kind of attributes that are clearly the result of some kind of chemical interference. So uh, I think that's a that's something that we need to be mindful of, not necessarily as fantasy baseball enthusiasts, but just as members of a of a of a community speaking of that andy i remember many years ago at first pitch arizona and just talking with you over the years that you had an interest in player use of peds which was very widely misunderstood uh, you said at the time since we don't hear much about this subject anymore where do you think baseball is and maybe pro sports with regards to peds especially steroids well steroids is like the the poster boy for performance enhancing drugs but there's an awful lot of performance enhancing drugs uh, used by athletes. I don't think the general principle has been overturned. The general principle is that the incentives are there for athletes on, you know, at the very, you know, precipice of achieving great things in their sport. The incentives are there to, for the athletes to do whatever it takes to perform better. And this, involved, this is where performance-enhancing drugs comes in. So I don't think that principle has been violated even today. I mean, clearly, there's lots of testing uh, for different performance-enhancing drugs. The, the lords of the sports, the lords of the Olympic sports, or the lords of baseball, they certainly want the game to be perceived as being clean. So baseball is happy right now because I think there's not much complaining about performance enhancing besides sticky substances on fingers, um, you know, there, there's not much complaint about it. So uh, in general, everyone, uh, lords of baseball are happy. There is testing in place that's still going on, and that probably uh, is working very well for certain kinds of performance enhancing drugs. But remember, the, the essential principle is still there. Athletes want to be their best. If they're told they can 
get a magic little elixir that's going to make them better, they're going to try it. Those are where the incentives are. And, you know, I don't think that's changed. I think that's still the same. It was 20 years ago when baseball had a performance-enhancing drug problem. Um, today, I don't think they perceive it that they do, but I think it would be a fool's bet to say no one's using performance-enhancing drugs. I'm sure it's going on. I was going to ask if the absence of announced suspensions and and even dismissals based on uh, – performance-enhancing drugs in Major League Baseball means they've stopped using them or just stopped getting caught. And, and the reason I ask is, in the Olympic doping uh, environment, the expression is the cheaters are always ahead of the guys trying to catch them. And I wonder if that's probably still the case, if they're coming up with new designer-type drugs that clear more quickly or don't show up at all on the tests, those kinds of things. Is this still going on? I presume so. I'm not in that game to say with any assurance. I just know the incentives are still aligned for people to try to be the best they can be, both through natural means and through other kinds of uh, other kinds of enhancements. So the incentives are there. I'm, I'm assuming some people are still maximizing their talent through farm, you know, pharmaceuticals, and that 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 hasn't changed. I think that's human nature. That hasn't stopped. So, yeah, I think it's happening in Olympic sports. I think it's happening in professional sports. Um, I, I, I just, I really think that it became a problem when the buzz got to be a little bit too negative. That happened 20 years ago with anabolic steroids. It happened this year with sticky substances. I mean, baseball turned a, turned a blind eye to steroids, and they turned a blind eye to sticky substances uh, until it became an issue where people were really, you know, talking about the negative impact on the game writ large, you know, national columnists and commentators, and that changed everything. They changed the rules. Do you think? Do you think that pitchers aren't trying to find spaces on their uniform with sticky substances? or their body put sticky substances that improve their spin rates? I think they are. I just don't think they're putting it on their hat and glove and belt buckle anymore. Yeah, where they've been told that's where we're going to look. It's like uh, going through a customs post if the sign up front says, we are going to check your glove compartment, trunk, and underneath the front seats for contraband. So you put the contraband somewhere else <laughs> and, yeah. and smuggle. I think that's exactly right. I. And, you know, I pres again, I presume it's because this stuff, the sticky stuff, improves spin rate. Now it's against the rules, but people were doing it for decades and decades. The only time they got in trouble was when it became, you know, just too apparent that you couldn't, you couldn't just turn a blind eye to it. You know, the Michael Pineda episode where on national TV, the commentators were going, look what's on his neck. Well, they had to do something. Uh, but if it was, you know, a little more hidden, people wouldn't have said a word because generally people in the game knew people were using sticky stuff for decades and decades and decades. And then Trevor Bauer and others uh, improved the the whole thing, the whole science of the sticky substances. Chemical engineers got involved, and now they, it got so much better on the pitching side that, you know, the 
a national commentator writes, oh, batting averages are so low historically. Well, the Lords of Baseball got concerned and they, they did something. So now the, the writers aren't writing that anymore. The writers aren't writing that story. So everybody's happy. You know what it seems like a reflection to me of is the whole history of, of marijuana use in our society, right? For the longest time, it's it's tolerated through the 20s, and then somebody puts out a movie called Reefer Madness, and for some reason, the authorities get all worked up because the voters get all worked up, and it's totally illegal. And over the last, what, 15 years or so, gradually people have said, too many people in jail, too many, uh, you know, social problems with criminalizing this stuff. Let's just legalize it again, and, and that's what they've done. And it's all about managing perceptions rather than actually managing the real situation. And I think uh, that's the way that's the way our communities are built, and that's the way it's always going to be. Uh, Andy, I always like to wrap up these discussions by looking at slumps, pumps, dumps, and jumps. Let's start with a slump, a player who is struggling right now but worth hanging on to for the rest of the season. Uh, I, I'm going to say Christian Yelich. I think he's been really struggling, but you know maybe these last six weeks he can uh, really pull the Brewers along with him towards the playoffs. So uh, yeah, Christian Yelich, stick with him. How about a pump? This is a player who's overachieving and could be worth selling high. I'd say Casey Mize and Luke Boyd. If you can get anything for those guys, get it now. I see Casey Mize. There's always risk with pitchers, but is it a playing time thing with Voigt? Yeah. Voigt's playing time. Casey Mize is actually innings. They're going to reduce his innings. He's actually been slumping. You know, he's been not pitching as well as he used to. Uh, yeah, you know, Voigt's a good hitter, but they're just there's a playing time problem with Voigt. If you can get anything for him, I think he's just not going to be. If you're in daily formats, like my auto new format, that's fine. But otherwise, Voigt might be a, a dump. How about, uh, well, an actual dump? This is an underachiever who's worth replacing. Oh, I'm going to say Eugenio Suarez. Uh, he's just not been same all year. I think he's great. I, I'm sorry I called Voight a dump. I meant Voight with a pump, you know, try to sell him. Uh, yeah, Suarez is my dump. Just, I don't, I don't, I don't think he's going to do much less. Something different with him this year. Yeah, something different indeed. How about a jump hitter? This is a player you would target if he became available in your trade market or free agent pool. I think there's a lot. I think uh, Yasmani Grandal, the catcher for the White Sox, is, is actually under roster. I can't believe he's not been, you know, increased uh, in, in his uh, size. I think because of his injury, people forgot about him. But if he's rosterable, go get him. I mean, the guy's just one of the better catchers available in fantasy. And finally, a jump pitcher. Oh, I I really like Ranger Suarez, another Suarez. Um, I think he's going to have a great last six weeks. Depending on your league rules, he might qualify as a relief pitcher, starter. He's been starting lately very well. Andy Andres Slump, Christian Yelich of Milwaukee. 
even though Andy Andres dropped Christian Yelich in one of his leagues. <laughs> Thanks for reminding me, Patrick. <laughs> Having it both ways. His pumps, Casey Mize of Detroit, Luke Voigt of the Yankees, a dump, Eugenio Suarez of Cincinnati, jump hitter, Yasmani Grandal in Chicago, and a jump pitcher, Ranger Suarez in Philadelphia. Andy, this has been terrific. Remind our listeners where they can keep up. Uh, yeah, well, I, you know, I'm on, uh, I follow, I have a Twitter handle. Uh, I, I don't really use Facebook, but you can always find me on Twitter and DM me. Uh, you know, find my course on edX.org if you want to learn more about the fundamental baseball analytics. I thought it was really well done. The feedback I've gotten from a lot of folks taking it. And, you, you know, I think that's, that's where I go. Uh, you know, follow me on Twitter. And basically, my handle is Sabermetrics101. Then edX.org. It is a, a really good Twitter follow. I will vouch for that. And I'll say, uh, Andy, I appreciate you taking the time. I knew this was going to be interesting. It's always interesting talking with you, and I do appreciate it. Will you be out at First Pitch Arizona this year? That is my goal. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm waiting for a little more information on the format uh, with COVID, but I, I, I love First Pitch Arizona. It's one of the highlights of my year, so... I'm certainly going to try to make it out again. Well, if you do, I'll buy you a beer and we'll talk about ah, baseball. <laughs> and and we, we can talk about stuff we're not allowed to talk to here on Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks, Andy, for helping out. I do appreciate it and talk to you soon. Yeah, thank you, Patrick. This was a lot of fun. Andy Andres teaches at Boston University. A quick break here, then we're back with our Baseball HQ commentaries, the frequent flyer and extra innings coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. But first... Let me remind you about First Pitch Arizona, how you can get a competitive edge for 2022 and have a ton of fun doing it. It's the 26th edition of Baseball HQ's signature fantasy baseball getaway, live and in person October 14th through 17th at the Sheraton Mesa Wrigleyville West, walking distance from beautiful Sloan Park. First Pitch Arizona is three full days packed with activities, like fantasy workshops and drafts and contests. There are seminars covering scouting, sabermetrics, and strategy. My favorite, hanging around the old fire pit and talking baseball with some of the best in the business. And of course, going to Arizona Fall League ball games, featuring some of the best rising stars from the minor leagues, always from your choice of the best seat in the stadium. Those tickets to games every day are just the beginning of your registration package. You'll also get free copies of Ron Chandler's 2022 Baseball Forecaster and Baseball HQ's 2022 Minor League Baseball Analyst, and they'll be sent to you just as soon as they're printed. A Thursday evening welcome reception where you can hobnob with the experts and your fellow attendees, more food at a free Saturday lunch event and free hot buffet breakfasts for guests at the host hotel, and of course, all kinds of handouts, instant freebies and prizes, not to mention as many AFL foul balls as you want to run after. And after a couple, believe me, you'll stop. <laughs> the First Pitch Arizona webpage is up and running to keep up with all the latest skinny on First Pitch Arizona 2021, including event schedules, registration information and discounts, and hotel discounts. Just go to baseballhq.com slash first hyphen pitch hyphen Arizona or just go to the BaseballHQ.com homepage, save all that typing, click on the big orange logo over there on the right-hand side. Our previous attendees call it the best weekend of the year. We call it First Pitch Arizona, and let's see you there. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. PD here. 
Time now for our regular commentaries. My extra innings comment is coming up. And leading off, it's the Frequent Flyer, a commentary on players who might be available in your free agent pool and who have the potential to get enough playing time and production to make them worth a spot on your roster. Here with a look at Yankee shortstop Andrew Velasquez, recorded last Thursday, is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. That he's a hometown kid from the Bronx who's actually living with his parents while playing for the New York Yankees undoubtedly enhances his appeal to the masses, according to an article published by Ken Davidoff in the New York Post on August 19, 2021. Born in the Bronx on July 14, 1994, and later attending Fordham Prep in the Bronx, now 27-year-old New York Yankees switch-hitting shortstop, Andrew Velasquez already feels quite at home, literally. Drafted in the seventh round by the Arizona Diamondbacks back in 2012, Velasquez has only played in 79 Major League games since his debut in 2018, making several brief journeyman MLB team stops before signing with his beloved Bronx Bombers this season. Hence, it's truly a feel-good story so far. Even so, Velasquez's career batting average of 180 at the big league level does not exactly inspire confidence. That's why 27-year-old New York Yankees switch hitting shortstop Andrew Velasquez, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league and especially in AL-only leagues. In fact, Baseball HQ's 2021 baseball forecaster perhaps correctly forecasted that the best-case scenario for Velasquez is a few hundred plate appearances of 650 OPS on base plus slugging in a bench roll with double-digit stolen bases. Although he hasn't amassed a few hundred plate appearances in a part-time role with the Yankees yet, his OPS is currently 654, extremely accurate, despite the small sample size, and Velasquez does currently have two steals, perhaps on his way to double digits by the end of the season. In other words, perhaps Velasquez might be a valuable role player on your team as well. But wait, there's more! Do we mention that through a few hundred minor league plate appearances in 2021, more specifically 277 plate appearances at AAA Scranton Wilkesbury, Velasquez produced an 838 OPS with 26 steals, well above double digits, and well above the 2021 baseball forecaster's best case scenario. Even so, forecasting a 650 OPS for a major league player with a 654 OPS in mid to late August is pretty amazing. It's all a part of the tools and analytics available to you at BaseballHQ.com. So maybe your best case scenario involves adding 27-year-old New York Yankees switch hitting shortstop Andrew Velasquez as a potential hidden source of steals and as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Extra Innings, my comment on baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I'd like to talk about a day at the old ballpark. My wife Lisa and I had a trip to Toronto earlier this week to visit with our oldest daughter. We're going to take her out to dinner to celebrate her new job, and way to go, Eb. Well, since we were going to be in town anyway, Lisa and I thought we'd take in an afternoon ball game down at Rogers Center, the tottering Jays against the steamrolling Chicago White Sox. The game had a pretty decent matchup, a battle of quality lefties, Hyunjin Ryu for Toronto against comeback-of-the-year candidate Carlos Rodon for the Sox, 
Radon was really good through five innings. Ryu, not so much. We had really good seats just to the first base side from right behind the plate near the top of the lower section. We saw, well, didn't see more of which on a second, five home runs, two by Marcus Semyon, one each by Cesar Hernandez and back-to-back jacks by Luis Robert and Jose Abreu. There was plenty of run scoring. The Jays fell way behind. Then they rang up a five spot in the sixth and ultimately lost 10-7. to There was a great defensive play by Vladdy Guerrero, diving flat out to snab a screaming line drive up the first base line. So it was an interesting and often entertaining game. And it was really great to be back with 15,000 fans in the building. They sounded like 40,000 when Semyon hit his taters and like 80,000 when Vladdy made his web gems grab. As a longtime Alejandro Kirk believer, it was fun for me to see him in the fifth spot in that packed Toronto lineup. He went one for three with a hit by pitch and a run scored. And a quick fact here, Alejandro Kirk has a higher OPS than Beau Bichette. You could look it up. But being at the game was not all that fun. First of all, the weather was terrible. It was 28 degrees Celsius, which is in the low 80s Fahrenheit, but very humid, very overcast. Even when they closed the roof, the humidity hung in there. Even ignoring the conditions, the game was made a lot less enjoyable than we had hoped, because just down our row were five young men who were a little tipsy at the start of the game and glassy-eyed, stumbling drunk by the end. One or two of them scuttled down our row almost every half inning to step on the toes of fans between them and the beer stand, then return with two more tall boy cans at 16 bucks apiece and repeat the toe mashing while going back to their seats. When they stayed in their seats, which wasn't often, they yelled at everything that happened. They cursed each other. They yelled at the action on the field, displaying a very limited knowledge of the game, but an absolutely encyclopedic mastery of profanity, to the unbridled delight of all the parents in the crowd with young kids. The ushers at the stadium saw everything and did nothing. A concessionaire walking past said, must be fun sitting next to those guys. And an usher did come down to fix a wicked stink eye on the group, then asked one of them if he was vaping. Vaping? Vaping was the least of what he was doing and the least disruptive. It would be like catching a student peeing on the schoolhouse wall and ask him if he had his hall pass. The bottom line here, it was great to be back in the ballpark out with the crowd, but not buying peanuts and Cracker Jack, not at $8 a pop. But these guys going back and forth all game meant I ended up seeing most of the action on replay on the scoreboard's big screen TV. My wife didn't see anything. She's much shorter than I am. She ended up watching the local broadcast of a 30-minute condensed version of the game so she could see everything she missed. What that means is we could have saved ourselves 200 bucks and watched it on the big screen at home, where it's air-conditioned, where 16 bucks buys enough craft IPA to last me a good week, and where there's nobody beside me screaming profanities. Well, you know, unless I leave the toilet seat up. I don't know how things are in other stadiums around Major League Baseball, but I bet they're often pretty similar. And I bet that can't be long-term good news for the game. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, and I have my extra innings commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August 27th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 41 of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest expert for this Friday full edition, Andy Andres, the baseball professor from Boston University. Andy is a terrific guest, a really active thinker and a longtime part of Baseball HQ Radio. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. 
Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy. And our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, your extra innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. And don't forget to send in those questions to that Twitter feed or to bhqradio at gmail.com with Todd Ray and me. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to wherever you catch your pods and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It does help us find new listeners and new listeners help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again in seven days with another Friday full edition, a guest expert interview, plus all the usual great content. And again, don't forget to send your questions for the big end of season roundtable with Ray and Todd at Patrick David on Twitter or bhqradio at gmail.com. Plenty of fun left in this season and on the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. See you next Friday. And for now, remember to send in those questions and so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.